everybody. Welcome to Let the Music Be Your Master. We're in the basement again. We're in the basement. That's a little shout out to B-52's fans. There you go. Um, and we have a guest with us today, which we'll introduce in a sec, but we've got the regular crew here. I'm Steve Ricks. Jason Johnson. Jordan Harmon. Brandon Arnold. And with us today is the esteemed Dr. Michael D. Hicks. Uh, welcome, Mike. Thank you. I appreciate you letting me crash your party today. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Mike, a.k.a. Dr. Hicks, a.k.a. Uh, Hicks Master Mike. Yep. That's a new one that was floated. It's great. Yeah. It's great. I'm all, I'm all in. I'm here for it. Uh, has been... Uh, a longtime listener and commenter on our podcast, for which we feel very uh, humbled and grateful, and and have been enjoying his comments and replies and emails to us and stuff. And it's great to get him in the in the basement and on tape. So we'll. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to hear how uh, how you two know each other. Protege, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I'll give a brief the master and I'll give the pupil. a brief intro, and then I should probably let Mike at some point speak for himself. Uh, Stevenson. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, <laughs> yes. If you can snatch the pebble from my hand, that's that was basically it. Four years of yes. trying to snatch a pebble from. No, um, and we're going to have a standoff today, right? This is the uh, the, the the a battle between Hicks versus the Rick, yes. the mentor oh, and the apprentice. Yes. <laughs> the student has become the master. That phrase, well, I'll try to see if I can under that phrase several times today <laughs> just to put it out there but no um you know mike was uh, hopefully i don't think any of my other former professors at byu ever listened to our podcast so i could probably get away with just saying this my favorite teacher at byu my favorite <laughs> professor but uh, my freshman year was 87 in 88 winter i took composition one mm. with uh with dr hicks here and that really launched me and put me on the on the path that yeah launch is maybe an overstatement <laughs> uh but what i'll say is it put me on the path to wanting to become a contemporary composer and i was gonna say did it form or solidify because that was your freshman year i don't know how set you already were on your path no well i, w- I was kind of one of these well i i was a trombonist in in high school that loved music and that was kind of naive enough to say when i got to college what do i love the most music okay i'll major in music <laughs> do i see myself becoming a professional trombonist no not really mm-hmm. i don't want to you know i don't see being in the practice room 8 hours trying to become the perfect trombonist but i think i like the big picture i could see being a composer that sounds great having written nothing in my life <laughs> but I, I i got in you know this school of music and then because I said, yeah, I want to be a composition major, I took composition one, and that that was uh, life-changing, absolutely. But then I also had you know, music theory, had a rock and roll class that kind of became famous and infamous. It was, it, was, <laughs> it was pretty influential, would you say, Mike, on your 60s rock book? Was it kind of a workshop for that book, or was the book mm. led to the class, or, or n- neither? <laughs> uh, well... I think that uh, they both came from the same roots, but I don't think one was a mirror or a spin-off of the other. Right. So. Okay. They both just were a reflection of your 
love and obsession with that music. My troubled youth. (laughs) (laughs) Of which we heard some before we started taping. I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) And and we'll be in the forthcoming book. It is in the book, yeah. Yes. Uh, But... I mean, all, all I can say is, yeah, Mike's been a great friend and mentor, and uh, I had the pleasure of, after you know, learning a lot from him and for, as an undergrad, coming back and starting teaching at BYU in 2001, and so we were colleagues for several years until he retired just a couple of years ago. And I, yeah, I owe my retirement to Steve's presence at BYU. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. No. It set things in motion. Yeah, <laughs> much, much like that Composition 1 class, my much, coming back. Much sooner than I had yeah. originally planned. No, yes. No, I'm a big fan. I'm a big Steve Ricks fan. So, wow. so any friends of Steve's are potential potential friends, friends. yeah <laughs> you gotta still be careful right at least one of the boxes is checked <laughs> yeah. so how how did you get started at at byu and i guess what what led to that in your life well uh, it's in the book <laughs> My, I, mean, I was a student there many years ago and uh i sort of lucked into the position uh, of professorship there uh, in 85 and uh, so i've taught there for th- i taught for 35 years there School of music, composition, aesthetics, theory, rock history, not not geology, but I was actually doing rock music, which was not done by anyone else there before or since, at least not in an academic way. So, but uh, yeah. What, what My, about uh, previous to that early life? What what led to your interest in those things? Well, I. Uh, I, I <laughs> Um, again, the, by, by the book, here I am shilling for this book. I, I <laughs> what's, this, that, but what's this book called? How, well, how the, will we know it when the, we see it? The book is called Wineskin, and the subtitle is Freakin' Jesus in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> so, I'm in. <laughs> and, uh, but, I, you know, I grew, up, I, I grew up in the Bay Area in uh, California there for, you know, I, I was 12 in, uh, in 68, and I was fairly at, at the premiere of 2001. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, and it was, I mean, I was ahead a year in school. I'd been bumped ahead in school. And so my interests were really based on sort of local groups. And there was a lot happening in music in the sixties in the San Francisco Bay area, as you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I loved the music. I listened to the music, uh, to the radio all the time. And of course I loved the Beatles as, as we all did then. And, that was kind of uh, a world for me. That was certainly my musical world. I didn't have any musical training (laughs) probably uh, ever (laughs) until I went to college. But uh, so, you know, so I saw groups and uh, listened to their records and and so on. So, I mean, I was seeing groups alive uh, when I was 12 and 13 and 14. (laughs) Most of the, most of the classic rock groups that I saw from uh, the doors to um, Santana to you know uh, those kind of groups uh, of that era you know sort of Woodstock ish groups I'll say mm-hmm. wow uh, what was the know, path for a 12 year old did you have like a music buddy that was taking you to these shows were you sneaking in the back no, that's a good question I mean they were cheap then I mean you could get uh, tickets you know 
I mean, good. T- well, they were sort of general admission tickets for outdoor festivals, basically six bucks. That was so. Yeah. You were a twelve-year-old that yeah. had enough uh, free reign, and you would walk up and say, "I would like to attend your outdoor yeah. show." We did go in groups of friends, so we'd have to choose sometimes. And and uh, so in '69, for example, they they had the second annual Northern California Folk Rock Festival, and you had to choose one of four concerts. And most of my friends chose the Jimi Hendrix one, and uh, a couple of us though chose the Led Zeppelin. Hmm. One big new group. We were, you know, 69. That was their first album had come out. We loved them. We thought, oh, this is the end thing. And we'll never get to see Led Zeppelin again, probably. But <laughs> Hendrix will be able to see any time, wow. you know. Well, Zeppelin didn't show. And, of course, we could have seen them <laughs> for years thereafter. And uh, Hendrix was, you know, dead, what, a year and a half wow. later. Mm. So, uh, so I never got to see Hendrix or Zeppelin. But I did get to meet Chuck Berry at that Wow. festival so wow. <laughs> but uh we were we were young and we were you know when they opened the gates we would run to the front uh row you might say of, of these things you can't really call them rows because they're always you know sort of sitting on the ground or sitting on the floor in some cases so so i had a lot of that sort of uh ears on experience not hands-on experience uh didn't play well Again, there's stories you can read about uh, having to do with playing music at that age, just by ear and figuring things out and breaking into the music instrument room at school and us recording things on the old woolen sack tape recorders and so on. But yeah, so that was really my my musical upbringing was. You were trained vein. by the greats. Yeah, yeah exactly. What a time to be alive! It, it, it was all it was all you know, listening and drinking it in and. Uh, getting a feel for it from records and and live shows uh, but not any training as such and of course everybody was playing guitar and sitting around in the you know whatever you know outside of this or that classroom or you know sitting on the lawn that kind of thing uh trading riffs on guitar you know that sort of thing uh figuring out how to play proud mary (laughs) Uh, this was so. This is before everyone was trying to play um, "Stairway to Heaven." You know, this is <laughs> some of those earlier things. Um, we're, so we're doing you know everything from "Ventures," "Walk Don't Run" to um, "Oh Sunshine of Your Love." You know, you know that sort of stuff. Figuring that out on guitar and who could do it best, and, and a lot of that kind of stuff. And then eventually recording our own stuff. <laughs> oh. Let me turn off these things. Okay. I thought that was my timer. Uh, <laughs> it's like, it's like, okay, Q, wrap it up, pal. Cue warm leatherette, please. No, I'm just kidding. Brandon's so subtle. <laughs> He's like, I'll be more subtle for, for Dr. You Nix. know, but, but when, when I graduated high school in 73, I got a Sony sound-on-sound tape recorder and uh, reel-to-reel. And so we were writing songs and recording them, friends of mine and I have. And and just me myself, you know, doing my own overdubs. Awesome. So yeah, it was that was really a new thing then. It's just it's so old hat and kind of it's beyond retro now. But but that was really something then that was miraculous in its own way. That's great. Very cool. Right. Yeah, we got the right guy to guest <laughs> today. Yeah, we did. 
<laughs> I feel bad. I feel, I'm guessing I've misused, misused so many terms that he's heard and thought to well, himself. I'm sitting here thinking, why is he listening to our podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, but then that's a genuine you, question. Thank like, you for, actually, uh, for wallowing in the mud of, yeah. our, uh, of our, our, our humble pod. <laughs> well, I'm a, I am a fan of the podcast because you make, first of all, you have a fantastic uh, rapport with each other that is earned and developed who knows how but but, uh, <laughs> but you're you know you're into the music you know that uh i guess there's a van morrison album called into the music right yeah. and 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 th- there's the passion but also uh, a kind of uh, grassroots scholarship is that like in other words it's the kind of scholarship that comes out of the hunger for the you know to get closer to the music, I used to talk about this as a theory teacher. You know that that uh, if you if you're a music major, you, you want it's like having a lover. You want I mean you you want to get as close to that person and and being one with that person. And I think that that all of you in here really have that feeling about music that you want to be as close to that music that you love somehow from the soul to the ears to the mouth to the brain uh in some order (laughs) maybe not in that order but uh so it's a i mean it's it's a great podcast and i've learned a lot of stuff because you're dealing really in another generation uh in many ways from well obviously in many ways you're in another generation from me but but uh a lot of my listening went in different directions so sort of the weirder avant-garde stuff that that ricks knows and writes himself too um but was all when he was also drinking weird other stuff, stuff? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um <laughs> yes i do so yeah people more people should listen to this podcast Hey, nice. thanks. You Love heard it right here. It. Very yeah. much. You yeah. heard yeah. it. <laughs> and and maybe there's also an endearingness about it, getting to see uh, your your young young student growing up. Like, <laughs> oh look at Steve, he's he's doing it. <laughs> Good he's for you, really, Steve. He's really on his own two no, feet. No, that's <laughs> I, that's the part I'm getting over. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. How they feel? I don't think they're proud of like, someone being on a podcast. I don't know. That, this he's, is like Steve's he's really arrived. <laughs> Steve can't put this on his CV. I don't think. <laughs> what are you talking about. No, he already has. Uh, <laughs> I did see it in a recent interview. That, uh, I was that gonna Steve, say, man. I yeah, I, I, right. I love yeah. I love the podcast. I love to spread the word, and I I, no. I consider it one of my uh, enjoy. Well, anyway, one of my main musical undertakings at present. So yeah, it's it's credited. Yeah. Ob- obviously, the the interviewer felt the way too. Enough about me. <laughs> well, are we going to do viewer yeah. mail, or oh, are we going to... Viewer mail. Let's do that. Viewer? Viewers? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> there is a secret camera up there. No. I feel like I'm at BYU. Why, why don't you tell... I'll pull up the email. You introduce this, Jason. Uh, so this came from one of my longtime friends, uh, a gentleman named Dwayne Henderson. I, I guess I can say his full name here. He's a grown-up. Uh, Dwayne was... Uh, was influential for me he was a a couple he still is a couple years older than me kind of a 
took me in as a as a neighborhood kid. We played in garage bands together. We got in BB Gun Wars under the viaduct down off of the the hill together. I still have a scar from where he shot me once. Um, <laughs> and uh, we've we've just kind of been, I think, kindred spirits that have always the one of the main bonds that we've had seems to have always been around music and in particular like i think like this quest for for something that's cool something that's like highly highly tasteful or sophisticated we we've always i think pushed each other in in trying to to pursue uh paths uh, around music through that and so Dwayne um will you text me fairly frequently as he's listening or call me and razz me a little bit but he he took time around i think it was in december maybe and uh and wrote a very thoughtful email that uh we haven't we haven't fully acknowledged yet and so i yeah. think i think now's the time to shout him out first of all Dwayne thanks for being a great friend thanks for listening and uh then without your permission Dwayne we're we're gonna we're gonna read your email. Um, we'll 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 cut to the main question of it. He he writes a little a little bit to each of us individually, but then uh, let's see. He says I have some thoughts come as I listen, and you guys do such a phenomenal job of kicking it all around. It's really fantastic. Oh, thanks, Dwayne. I wondered if the dead would ever get some love, and they finally did. I have wondered why fish hasn't seen, hasn't been much of a discussion, but then you touched that as well in one of the episodes. So I think maybe I would like to throw something out there. I know this is one of the few deep divisions between me and Jason, and this came out of the Beatles versus America discussions. Forgive me if uh, forgive me if you have had this come up and I've missed it, but I think I'm caught up. Tom Petty. Jason was a stickler on the point matrix deal on the Americans against the Beatles, and I am way too lazy or don't have the time to check, but I would think his record of hits would put him up there with the best. I know Jason can't stand him. My defense of Tom Petty would be the traveling Wilburys. Do you get to be in a super group with Dylan, Harrison, Jeff Lynn, and old Roy Orb if you're a hack? Obviously, Interested yes. Interested to hear what the panel thinks. <laughs> Tom oh, you Petty. want me to respond? I so here's my response. I would love to do the homework. I'm I'm all in for uh, undertaking a, a Tom Petty discussion. Uh, I think it's a, a great point. Um, th- he is a, an important figure in American music, and I'm I'm all in on doing the homework to either approve uh, or disprove my current <laughs> position. I uh, the willingness. I probably is there. go go along with that. Tom Petty is one that. I know, I know, is highly regarded in in some circles, but I haven't. What the little bit that I have heard hasn't interested me enough. We've yet tried to, draw to acknowledge our, our bias, and I think there's there may be a generational bias for yeah, like me, Jordan, and Brandon's. We had this window where I think Tom Petty was really, really this credible artist, and then there was this window in the early '90s where. MTV got their hands on him. And he and had he, a video with Johnny Depp. Yeah, he, he went so much, all in like, hmm. on these kind of ridiculous videos that were, that seemed to be far more about the videoification of music than <laughs> I, I think, you know, what he was really the best at. And for, for, I can't speak on behalf of other music snobs of the area, but, era, but for a music snob, like myself of that era, it was somehow so off-putting that I think I just t- 
<laughs> discredited his whole mm. previous history and, and kind of let that determine who I thought, who I assumed he was. I'm certain that there is, um, that I, I will find, uh, some, some really valuable stuff, uh, that, that Dwayne is, is thinking of when he refers to Tom Petty. But I think because of that, we obviously have a somewhat of a homogenous, um, representation here i don't think petty's been properly discussed or or represented in the pod so i would be thrilled and maybe maybe what it is is like a part two of uh, america versus the world or something where we uh where we can bring him in and discuss Mm -hmm. i think there is something to the generational bias thing um it seemed I'm, i'm thinking you know he was kind of hitting the peak of his popularity all these top hits when we were probably starting to, you know, think anyone who listens to the radio is, you know, doesn't have good taste in music. And uh, so that's, that's, I think there's something to that. What about our guests? Yeah, what's your experience with Tom Petty? Uh, I have limited experience. I'll I'll say two things about the one is, uh, although I've heard very little of his stuff and mostly MTV video kind of stuff, but... uh, the more I've listened to of his, the more I like. It. I think I think this is good. This is good, but I haven't been driven to listen to more. And that's sort of a vibe I'm getting from some of you. It's mm-hmm. like, well, it's you know, it's good. But and I think the other thing that I want to say about it is, and this is true for uh, all of us, I'm sure, uh, including uh, uh, Dwayne. Is that his name? Uh, it's the old uh, Emily Dickinson thing, you know, the soul selects its own society and shuts the door. And it's like, you know, he may be great. There's lots of things that are great that I just, it's like, I can't go there right now because I'm too focused on or too, um, you know, abasant to or worshipful of these other things in my life. And, and it may be great, but I just have to let it go. Alt J. Some of that's happened. Yeah. Alt J. <laughs> yeah. Steven, I, I've been, I tried, man. And it's good, but I felt like Alt J entered into Steve's soul, and this door shut. And my door, I'm opening the door, and it's not coming in. It's just not. I think we've talked about it before. I am, they were stuck in my room or something. I, I am know. super curious. I think this happens with movies, probably with lots of different types yeah. of art. I think there is art that kind of like lines up with where we're at developmentally at different eras of life. And there's certain art pieces that I feel like developmentally you're more primed at some times than others yeah. and i i am yeah. suspicious that i may have like missed my most prime window mm-hmm. of being able to tap into the the tom petty of it all but i do know that like <laughs> wildflowers i think is is widely considered mm-hmm. like a really important album and mm-hmm. it's an album i've never spent time with and so i you know what I love Dwayne. The anthrax came in at just the right. It hit me as an as an eighth grader that was scared walking around Dixon. Like (laughs) that, it meant more to me. (laughs) I'm not going to relive it. I put my heart out there. All right, Brandon. (laughs) Anyway, Dwayne, I love you, man, and uh, it was awesome to hear from you. And I appreciate you uh, listening. He lives in North Carolina, so he's listening all the way across the country. Wow, very nice. Thanks, Dwayne, for chiming in. Yeah. So what's the, what's the topic today? Well, the topic today is virtuosity. And we were we were of course lucky enough to land a, a session here with Dr. Hicks and uh as as he, as Mike and I kind of chatted together 
uh, we kind of landed on this topic. The springboard for the topic is a is a radio program uh, Mike did back in 2002 with uh, Marcus. 20th anniversary. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yes. We could probably link it. Be a link lot it. of. Do we have show notes that we could link yes. this to? Yes. All right. Yeah. Look, look for the notes on the website. Yeah. Yeah. We, we just go to michaelhicks.org and it's. There it look is. for radio shows and it's there. Yeah. So. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a show called About Music. And the title of that specific show was Virtuosity in 60s Rock. Mm-hmm. And this was a show that I remember. I mean, so that was just, you know, it was only a year after I started teaching at BYU. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting, uh, you know, probably like a CD dub mm-hmm. <laughs> copy of it yeah. for, from you, Mike, and, and listening to it, enjoying it, and kind of thinking about it. So, of course... Uh, I want to plug anyone going to listen to that. We're, we won't. We won't play it now. Now we're going to play it for th- <laughs> no, <laughs> thirty minutes. Play it. No, play I, it. I think all of us have have listened to it and mm-hmm. and kind of that informed our discussion. So oh, I I don't. I just want to mention a couple things from that program, and then what I'm thinking the format of today is going to be, and then uh, of course if our guest has anything to chime in about before we launch in, that's great. But uh, so. Essentially, what I love about this this show is that Mike sort of presents an original definition of virtuosity of being just you know someone who's great, someone who's who who, and in the case of music, then is a great artist, right? It's kind of like more of a general description or for their their body of work or who they are that they've reached a certain high level. But then you talk about how is it like the you know the 18th century, 17th century and beyond that mm-hmm. it kind of takes on this uh, a slightly different definition, which is you know specific skill in playing or demonstrating ability, mm-hmm. and and it's that kind of definition is mostly what we still think of today. I think when we think of virtuosity, mm-hmm. higher, faster, louder, you know, or b- being flashy, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean. As I listen to this program, I, I think so. I think our challenge for today's episode was let's each come up with three examples of virtuosity in rock. What you know are three top examples of virtuosity in rock. But um, I, I think Mike kind of threw a gauntlet down, two gauntlets, maybe two and a half, or or maybe a third gauntlet. <laughs> Here's what I think they are. In his episode, he focused on vocalists and guitarists. I think that's natural. And I found myself kind of doing the same, but I also think there was kind of a gauntlet there of like, okay, we're we're revisiting this subject. Mm -hmm. Are we going to find non-guitar and non-vocal examples to say, this is virtuosity and rock, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Um, another specifically, gaunt- are we going to find trombonists? <laughs> always the question. So, Steve's actually asking without know. asking it. Right. So all three of my picks are obviously <laughs> trombone. JJ Johnson. <laughs> yes, one of the best rock trombonists, JJ Johnson. Um, and uh, another gauntlet was near the end. I felt talking about Dylan mm. and you kind of were talking about Dylan's uh delivery of uh, line use the term right yeah this is pre Nobel Prize winning yeah yeah so the but the gauntlet was 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 in my to my ears the idea that you know, you. I don't. I don't know how strongly you were holding to this, but you were kind of suggesting that 
no one's maybe no one's done it better since Dylan. This idea of delivering verses or lines of text that back to back that maybe have multiple different numbers of syllables, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the flexibility of being able to like yeah. uh, deliver a bunch, deliver a few in the same amount of time that the that the music allowed for a particular verse. Mm-hmm. That he had a certain flexibility or virtuosity with his delivery of mm-hmm. text. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, uh, you know, especially with my nineties beyond rap friends, Kendrick Lamar has. There's there's got to be some examples out there. So I wonder if that will also come up. So some non vocal or guitar examples, some some rap, Mm -hmm. hip hop examples to to maybe challenge this idea that that Dylan's the best. Uh, (laughs) Unseat Dylan. No. Well, of course. It was true when I said it, which was the gauntlet that was picked up by the next generation of musicians. And so, so 2002, it was true. It was true at that moment, and it was a challenge, which was picked up, and I appreciate that. Nice, nice. And then a third, it's not, it's not really a, a gauntlet or challenge, but the third thing I thought of, which is inherent in this, this radio program by Mike, was... Essentially, opening up the idea of like d- redefining virtuosity. Yeah, I think right is and so and and or, or at least reexamining it. You kind of presented these two form, you know, more traditional definitions, and then I think maybe with with Dylan and Jagger kind of morphed into this idea of uh, virtuosity equals individuality, or this idea that like doing doing something. Better than anybody else. Sorry, <laughs> I don't, know, I don't, don't, don't mind Jordan on. over there. I think that's the the radio <laughs> that program. Was it. So, that was it. I don't know why it turned that, on. Of that series, Jordan yeah. just decided to listen on. to it right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh crap, we had notes. <laughs> I'm almost Some, like, somehow my phone is having the phantom the phantom uh, <laughs> thing where it just turns things on suddenly. Yeah, I'm sorry. I I'm almost done. That, so yeah. so ba- basically, just the idea and my and and I'm happy to yield the mic now to anybody else, including Mike. Yield the mic to Mike. But just the idea that. Um, you know, uh, another way to look at virtuosity is doing something that nobody else can do or better than anybody else can do. And the idea that, well, probably being yourself, you could be yourself better than anybody else can. So if you're not good in a traditional sense or good Mm -hmm. at a particular instrument, Mm -hmm. figuring out what your unique skills are and just honing those Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. deeply and as much as you can, that's kind of a form of virtuosity. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And so that that seems to me it opens mm-hmm. up. We could see if there's some interesting picks where some of us are trying to make a case and say this is some of the highest possible examples of virtuosity, even though it might on the surface kind of be like, well, that's <laughs> yeah. not fast or high or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> doesn't yeah. take any no. skill at all. You know, why, why is that virtuosic? That, well, that's uh, I, I just want to say a couple of things in response to that. One is uh, that's really why I wanted to hear you all talk about it. it just. Mm-hmm. To have you think about what you know, what is the thing? Well, I, I go back to the Tom Peters book with the great title, "The Pursuit of Wow," and so, so ultimately, I guess what I'm getting at is, that, what is it that makes you hear something and go, "Wow," and and uh, that's a, a, a sort of a process of self uh, discovery, which is great in itself and, and but also thinking about well, what what are the elements of of uh, and virtuosity may be too highfalutin a term I, I don't know you know it's kind of academic sounding but but what's the wow 
factor, as they say, you know, nowadays, well, at least <laughs> years ago, the wow factor. And, and uh, you know, when I said that about uh, Dylan, by the way, I listened to the, to the broadcast uh, again uh, last night and it's like, oh, that was kind of, that was sort of a stupid thing to say. <laughs> it was a bold so, claim. I was thinking yeah. Jason's in his head thinking of, yeah. It was the <laughs> only thing I heard in the... Well, <laughs> I, I, I do want to, the only thing I want to say about it, maybe in defense of that statement about Dylan is I was trying to sort of make the case for Dylan. Yeah. It, not so much to diss others, but uh, because Dylan is so easily parodied and sort of put down as a vocalist uh and and i i just i wanted to say something that was and that was a little over the top at the time although some of it just reflected yeah yeah, i mean it did reflect also my own inexperience with with uh, the later iterations we'll say of that's how i took it though i'm an unabashed dylan fan so i didn't i didn't cringe at the thought of it but that the way i heard it i i was thinking to myself this is what i'm trying to say when i tell people that dylan's good and they're like Eh, is he? Yeah. <laughs> no, he really is. This yeah. is why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and there's so there as- so many other aspects of, right. of greatness of Wow with Dylan, but um, yeah. So that's my that's why I wanted to go this direction with this, you know, in hijacking in a sense <laughs> this podcast. Uh, I want to hear you know what things strike you and and and. Uh, make you think this this is this is something you know i i think of the the uh, <laughs> and I, I this is where i wish there were visuals so i could show this but when uh, w- when paul mccartney was invited to go hear hendrix at some club you know i think jeff beck invited him to go in 67 or so and uh, paul mccartney tells the story of it and he says he says we were sitting there and hendrix is playing and uh and and mccartney puts his finger up to his to his lips and he says and and i thought this is good (laughs) (laughs) and and, uh, that's like the understatement of course of the decade but that that sense that you that that you can't you don't even know how how to respond to it other than this is good there's some this is it's activating brain cells it's activating heart cells you know and uh what so what is that and how does it do that how does it do that yeah, I think it's a great topic. I'm excited to get into it and share picks and hear others. Let's do get into it. Let's right. do it. Like, I, I would love to not start since I've been talking so much. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's starting? You. Oh, Jason. Jason. Hey, I'll start. Right, let's go around or, or Jordan. I don't know. Let's go around the horn. Who's Jason, starting? Is Jason's it me? ready. All right. Um, I'll, I'll go with uh, this. Will nah, two of at least two of mine will be fairly unsurprising, but they, it gave me an avenue. Uh, to talk about stuff I, I really like about, so I don't mind if it's unsurprising. Um, the way I looked at it, as you said, virtuosity, it is kind of a, a highfalutin term, and I, the, the way I converted it in my brain is I re, my, my lizard brain replaced it with the idea of like a superpower. Like, hmm. there's certain musicians that have just this superpower hmm. that puts them above i think their contemporaries and even above people that come behind them and sometimes it is hard to put your finger on and Mm -hmm. the one that i picked kind of forced me down this this rabbit hole of of study that i'm grateful for because i think it did help me put my finger on it a little bit uh anyway i'm going drums i'm going to start off with drums to to get away from the vocals and the guitar 
and it's uh, I'm going to go with the drummer of the the Meters, who I, I think Mike you are a, a fan of uh, Ziggy Ziggy Modalist. You know, you know the Meters, right? Uh, Do you know I've, the Meters? I've heard a little bit, but no, I'm not a uh, New Orleans New Orleans sure. funk and. Uh, there, mm. he is famously considered like one of the great funk drummers of all mm. time. Mm-hmm. And when you listen to him, it sounds like his drums sound fairly simple, but there's something like people have been trying to copy it since the 70s. When Led Zeppelin would go through New Orleans, they would ask the meters to perform a private concert for them. Mm-hmm. I think they talk about that in the, the Hammer of the Gods. And there's something that gives him like this drumming superpower that has made him one of the most sampled drummers in hip-hop, one of the most copied drummers in funk, very, very influential. And so when I dug into it, um, I I, I guess to save you the the nerd terms, I got into this concept of funk called Second Line. And it's this idea that comes from New Orleans music. If any of you have had the the opportunity to spend some time in New Orleans, um, the famous part is Bourbon Street, but if you go over to Frenchman Street, it's just like wall-to-wall music and they will have these impromptu parades sometimes it's a uh funeral par- parade sometimes it's a celebration of a, an event and you have this whole subculture of black indians from new orleans and this idea of the second line was the front line of the parade would be playing bass drums on the one and the three and then the second line was all the rhythm that would fill in in between and a lot of times it would be like snare drums and horns playing this mm-hmm. syncopated mm-hmm line and so the nearest i can tell is that the magic the superpower of uh ziggy modalist is he figured out how to do the second line as a single drummer Mm. within a within a um band and that became the new orleans sound james brown kind of famously had two new orleans drummers train him on this idea of the second line and that's what became james brown's model for funk so i want to just listen to it I think the what's happening here is like a syncopation in the in his snares where there's a weirdly like a, a a really subtle swing amongst they call it in the cracks just in the cracks between his notes uh pull up the album Rejuvenation by the Meters you can pick just about anything on it um let's take a I think probably an easy one to listen to go hey pocky away by the meters Brandon, same album, jump over to People Say. I think you can hear another example of that kind of second line funk.
All right, you can kill it. So there's something about it. It's a superpower. On the surface, may sound a little bit simple, but people have been trying to copy it for 50 years, and nobody's done it like him. I really think it's a, a superpower, and it's had... What's his name again? Uh, Ziggy, uh, Ziggy Modalist. Drummer for the Funky Meters. My favorite group of all time. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. You know who, who I think is uh, a drummer that... I, I, don't, I won't say it's come close, but it's definitely influenced by this sound is uh, Billy Martin from Medeski Martin and Wood. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very New Orleans, funky, shuffle, kind of, yeah, love, love. I've always loved his drumming and uh, the meters you hear, like, okay, he's, but, he's a fan of the meters. Yeah. So that idea, the second line was cool, and I think he's captured that. There is this kind of feel, like you can just imagine yourself marching down the street, just singing, singing, chanting, playing along with it. And he, uh, he, he did it really, really good. Love That's it. my pick. Nice. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, do, do you, you want to vote? Vir, 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 virtu, virtuous, virtuous or not virtuous? Virtuous. <laughs> Lovely. Good report. Well, virtuous, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All uh, right. Are we, are you we know, moving I, on? Or it's it's it. yeah. did that, you know, to me, drummers are already in a superpower realm because, I, I mean, I, it's, a, it's a world of sound and, and of execution that is it's just sort of startling to me I, uh the coordination of it which is like uh, like organists are the same way it's a full body thing but uh, to create the counterpoint we would say in technical you know school of music terms that you get in those examples and and but in in lots of drummers work it's they're, they're thinking of these different voices they're orchestrating this set uh, it, in ways that, uh, first of all, I don't get the conceptualization of it. It's startling to me in that sense. And I don't get the physical <laughs> execution of it. The coordination is, is uh, the physicality of it is also something that's... It's pretty great. Yeah. So that's a great example. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And, and drumming is maybe maybe unique in the... Like in a band setup, in the in the sense that, oftentimes the only the only time you notice it is if they mess up. Like it's it's easy <laughs> right, for it right. to be yeah. just just there, <laughs> yeah. and you take it for granted. Just yeah. needs to be reliable. Kind kind of like in the job. in the movie world, like the uh, the sound. Yeah, you know, yeah. like yeah. you just take it for granted that it's going to sound good. Mm-hmm. And but if they mess up, if you can't hear someone's voice or there's distortion where there shouldn't be, something like that, then you're like, oh crap. And like drummers, if <laughs> if they aren't competent, they're just not going to be in the band. You have to have that yeah. level of competency, yeah. or else and, the band doesn't work. That's at all. kind of why I picked him. I could have picked Clyde, Clyde Stubblefield as well, and probably had a similar discussion. But I mean, in the world of drummers, you think Keith Moon, you think Neil Peart, you think these big kits and these massive solos, and those mm-hmm. are cool. Those are impressive. Mm-hmm. But there's something to be said for somebody with a really tight snare that has just perfect rhythm, but that can also swing when they need to swing, and uh, and keeps somehow keeps everything together. Like, is, is he one of those drummers that only has a snare? No, he has like a. There, I mean, there's some that it's just a snare yeah, and a kick like and a, a hi hat, uh, and they do amazing. What's stuff? the guy's name with the fearless flyers uh, and Wolfpack? Uh, uh, the I can't remember. He, he's kind of like that, but he yeah, has is a it Nate Smith. Yeah, Nate Smith. He yeah. has. 
Modalist has like a, f- a fairly modest kit. He's not doesn't have one of those three sixty mm-hmm. setups. Although I've seen him, there's some YouTube videos where he plays on a on a bigger kit. But yeah, he keeps it fairly yeah, simple. Feel and and it's in that New Orleans stuff so so much. Mm. Cool. Okay. Should we move? Do you want me to step it, up George. and do my first pick? Okay. Yes. Here it comes. So I was uh, I, li- I really like the challenge of this virtuosity and thinking about you know we've talked on here uh about uh, we i don't think we've used this this uh language of virtuosity but i think i made fun of dave weckel one time speaking of (laughs) drummers because backwards drumming yeah in the 90s i remember it was very much the kind of slacker ethos and diy and and you know there was like musicians that were so good but like i think you mentioned your radio program that could be so good technically but you kind of felt like a soullessness and maybe that's unfair maybe mm-hmm. dave weckel has a great soul and great musicality <laughs> but that was like one of our go-to well, like i whole, listen to this yeah the whole chick korea electric band could go both ways i mean yeah. there, there are things i really love about them but yeah they're kind of like that pushing the the technical facility so far yeah. that you, you sometimes i think step back and be like okay right and as a, as it's a gone kid, too far <laughs> And there's probably a part of it that's like, I'll never be that good, so let's make fun of it, too, you know? But, but yeah, so I always um, have appreciated the, the virtuosity of when you can be musical, you know, whether or not you have the technical skill. And so I was thinking of virtuosity in some different ways. I, I really liked the radio program that you did with the Roy Orbison, you know, mm. um, the, the Bob Dylan, the Jimi Hendrix, and you can hear technical really good technical players and yet they're really serving the music mm. um so i also was inspired by your thinking of okay mike hicks is taking this from the 60s rock let me bring this to the 90s mm-hmm. and think what are the what are the examples from the 90s and at first i was i was um i actually went back a little bit to my favorite beastie boys album which is um Paul's Boutique, and then I thought of the Dust Brothers, and I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose the Dust Brothers. They, they were the producers um, of the tracks on Paul's Boutique. In fact, half of them were totally, fully formed instrumental tracks that they were gonna just bring to the club. And the Beastie Boys, Adam Yauch heard, heard it and said, "Hey, we just want to rap on top of this." And they were like, "There's too much going on." And he said, no, let's <laughs> let us rap over this. And it's considered one of the best hip hop albums of all time. But as I kind of uh, researched more, I decided to go with the Dust Brothers from another album they did in the '90s uh, or in the '90s, which was with Beck, Beck. Odalay. So mm. this album comes right after Beck has had this huge hit, his like alternative slacker stoner hit, Loser. And so he comes out with Odalay, and the record label didn't really expect much. They weren't looking over their shoulder. He had the he, at first he was going to do a very stripped down singer songwriter kind of acoustic thing, like he did later later in Sea Change. And kind of after working a lot with these other kind of acoustic type producers, he brings in the Dust Brothers. He changes everything around, and he produces this album that is just an eclectic masterpiece of mm. samples strangeness alternative whatever randomness mid 90s at its best and it still holds up last year was the 25th anniversary so i want you to play hot wax from odalay and i want you i'm making the argument that beck and the dust brothers combined were uh virtuosic in their use of samples and eclectic mixing of this form of alternative pop rock whatever it is hot wax from beck Thank you. 
backwash man to sing a backwash song Like a frying pan when the fire's gone Driving my pig while the band's taking pictures in the grass And my radio smashed and I like pianos in the evening sun Dragging my heels till my day is done Saturday night in the captain's clothes Tin horns blowing with my chewy froze Fast forward it to the end of the song with about 30, 30 or 40 seconds left. Okay. Of rhythm. Why did you come here? I came here to tell you about the rhythms of the universe. This this whole album to me is like I just listened to it last night after initially listened to all of Paul's Boutique and preparing stuff for that and I was like it's got to be Odelay. Like it's so <laughs> virtuosic it as an so alternative, good. whatever eclectic uh, smorgasbord. And and it's said that those two albums, Paul's Boutique and Odelay, could not be made anymore because of hmm. the way sampling hmm. uh, sample has, has changed. Yeah. Like they cleared everything for both those albums. They almost Paul's Boutique almost got the Beastie Boys almost got sued by the Beatles, but they cleared everything, but at much much lower rates than they do now. Hmm. Because there were so many samples on Paul's Boutique specifically. With Beck, it was different where the Dust Brothers and Beck were together creating. Uh, they were listening to records, using samples, but also creating their own samples. Where mm-hmm. Beck would go play something on the guitar, some kind of riff, and then they would take it, record it, mix it up, turn it backwards, put effects on it, loop it, slow it down. And it just reading about the making of the album is fun to just read about it it's like they just sound like they were having so much fun it's awesome it's probably it's for sure like one of my 20 favorite albums of all time maybe top 15 but it is the the production is so dense it's a really interesting companion piece i think i mentioned before on here but like the the more urban version of that paul's boutique album would be like fear of a black planet where the shockley brothers were kind of doing the same thing that the dust brothers were doing but they had it was so sample dense but it was somehow really artistic and uh, and i agree i think it's very virtuous virtuosic <laughs> is that the word? i always want to add a t <laughs> in there virtuosic virtuosic <laughs> Nice. Uh, is this the only album that he did with the Dust Brothers? I think so, but I'm not sure. Um, it's my favorite album of his. He's gone on and done great things as well. But I, it was a time where he he was maybe going to be a one hit wonder for Loser, right? Like that was what he probably was going to be. But this album was so not safe. It was so just let's do something wild, you know. Yeah. And he, I think he's done great stuff since. But this is my favorite. Yeah. 
maybe maybe it's similar to like Radiohead with Creep, and then their second album. Not that they had the Dust Brothers, but yeah, their second album made people think, oh, there's something more to there's this. Something more, this yeah. Radiohead group, but I, I would say Beck just as a individual career wise also virtuoso like the the stuff he's capable of and not not just i mean he's got the he's got the pipes which you wouldn't believe it from songs like this like he's just kind of white boy rapping on these Mm -hmm. but (laughs) like you listen to midnight vulture stuff and he's got an amazing voice well and even see change i think he's i think he's our generation's bowie he he can do kind of anything and he does it really effectively and he somehow stays cool when like you're you don't usually stay cool like to the next decade you kind of like he's kind of stayed cool he hasn't he hasn't had his tom petty like phase of like, he almost oh, did. Okay. He, almost, he almost did. Yeah, with with this first album, but yeah. Okay, great pick, Jordan. Yeah, Mike, me. What do you got for you us? You know, you you all have the advantage of me in that you have grown up in an era in which the studio and studio techniques are the instrument uh, of virtuosity now and uh and so you you perceive things in different ways so i love that thinking that you're bringing that 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 this is virtuoso recording in a sense uh and uh i was thinking you know when i was doing that show 20 years ago and in my own experience i tend to think more of oh this artist doing these things in this way or this track and and so on um but not so much the, I don't even want to say manipulation, but the use of these techniques as the instrument. Right, like that's the production the virtu- or the mixing. That's the virtuosity yeah. Yeah. or, or the, the medium of the virtuosity, which is great. Um, I'm going to, I have three picks as, as you all do. I'm going to start with uh, something that is probably the most conventional in this discussion, the least imaginative, and that is I was thinking about what's in, to my mind I don't want to say the best guitar solo but my favorite guitar solo. Now uh, I'm thinking of course of recordings that's what you do in this podcast uh, my favorite guitar solo that I've heard is Actually, Frank Zappa, uh, December 1984, Circle Star Theater, San Carlos, California. <laughs> it was a, it was an hour and a half. Uh, the the concert was an hour and a half uninterrupted, just continuous music because he's got everything locked together and and I was so astounded uh, by that. And that was virtuosic as a group, but uh, his guitar soloing, I, I just didn't even realize what an amazing guitarist he was so there are those wow moments that that you have where you hear someone rendering something uh, you know showing off a skill that you didn't really know about um so i was thinking about what's my favorite guitar solo of any recording that i know of and uh it's actually it's about 50 seconds in the middle of Kid Charlemagne by Steely Dan. It's Larry Carlton's uh, solo there. And if you actually look that up online, I googled it, and, it's, and there are so many sites that are all about learning how to play that solo. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> it's, uh, and so, but the thing is too that as I've been uh, 
listening to things, thinking about uh, this particular discussion, uh, I'm thinking about how is the, what's the whole track like? The beginning you are you sort of got at it with your pick too, um, Jordan. That, that uh, you know, how does it move from beginning to end? And this particular guitar solo emerges in the middle of this. The, the guitar is the lead guitar has basically not been there in the song to that point and then it sort of introduces itself and and it sort of steps in and takes over like like a character in a drama that wasn't there and suddenly they enter the scene and everything suddenly becomes about them and the rest of the track uh uh, Carlton just keeps uh, sort of throwing in these little licks in between uh, vocal passages. And then the very end of the thing, the, the vocals are over. And there's this sort of weird, um, I don't know how to describe it, but the, almost this processional feel where he just sort of, I mean, it's like something out of, you know, Fred Astaire movie or something. And, and then he goes off and, and, and just solos again. It's sort of like, I got this. I, it's sort of like, uh, I suck the landing. Now um, I'm going to go up and get my medal or something. So there, there's this incredible narrative in the relationship of the guitar solo to the rest of the song and the ensemble so it, it, there's not time to go through all of that here but just the one solo itself in the middle of it starts basically at 2.15 in that track so just listen to that the architecture of it Coming up to the best line. Hold on. Keep it going. Keep it going. Get ready. Didn't we have a discussion about that line? <laughs> yeah. What, Mike, what, what you don't know is the Steely Dan kind of made an appearance. Yeah, I remember that. La- last, our last episode that we just recorded that hasn't been released yet, but oh. we we, oh, we, yeah. we had some more Steely Dan talk, and then I think I think a fallout of all that banter was I was texting around 
I, I love that line. Line. <laughs> This season so of our podcast might just be about converting Brandon to Steely Dan <laughs> because he's the, he's the yeah. holdout. He's the only holdout. Really, so who yeah. is the player on that? That's Larry Carlton. Larry Carlton. Yeah. That was, that's great. That was really good. He has, um, it reminded me of Trey Anastasio from Fish that a uh, Dwayne mm. referenced, but yeah. a really smooth tone. Yeah. Um, I know the song. I haven't focused in on that, uh, that solo as much as I sh- should have. That was it's, nice. You know, it's, there's a I've quoted this for years to students this Ford Maddox Ford uh, comment uh, a good style consists of a constant succession of tiny surprises and that solo is that yeah. way for me it's like I don't know where this is going but I'd love where it's taking me everyone and that's just like that's like 45 seconds that thing and 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 I I go back to it uh, again and again it's like this is this the architecture of this the 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 confidence of it as i mentioned it's sort of it's got this gymnast thing you know i'm doing all this stuff like a gymnast will do and then they stick the landing it's just oh <laughs> holding that long tone at the end uh yeah I was, so yeah i anyway. was gonna say that this is the first time i've heard that song mm-hmm. and hearing that hearing that solo it struck me as odd yes it's a very odd it solo. is odd yeah and you know, at first, it, you know, it starts out, uh, starts out okay, yeah, guitar solo, and then there's a, some some point, maybe ten seconds in, mm-hmm. that I'm like, he's playing the wrong notes, <laughs> and then it keeps going, and I think that's that's where you see the the jazz mm-hmm. influence coming mm-hmm. in here because mm-hmm. there, it's not your typical one four five rock song yeah. chord structure. He's they're they're moving things around in surprising mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, surpri- that's it. Surprising ways. That, that's that's actually a constant succession of tiny surprises throughout that. And so I, it's that's my. Fa- I've had this discussion with many colleagues over the years. You know, who have their favorite guitar solos in things. And it's uh, uh, well, if, if one, We're have to one have another episode there, about that. That uh, that uh, you know, he loves the guitar solo, like in uh, All Along the Watchtower. You know, which I. I really hate that guitar solo. <laughs> I mean, for no. a lot of reasons. I understand why it's admirable and so on. It's sort of you know moved through different styles and so on. And I love Hendrix, but but to me that that's my favorite. And uh, at a certain point, you can't justify it beyond that. But I at least I've given you some of the reasons why. Love it. Bravo. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of guitar solos, let's go with. I mean, I, I hate to argue with that one, but let's play the real, <laughs> the real best guitar solo of oh, all time. Oh, what Beatles song did you pick? Teach me something, Teach me. <laughs> something with George Harrison. Uh, no, no, I'm I'm doing the real best guitar solo of all time. Uh, this is a little bit earlier than Yngwie that Mom, one. Malmsteen. No. <laughs> what year was that? Seventy six. Seventy six. Yeah. Seventy six. So we're gonna take this back to nineteen sixty nine. Mm. Cinnamon Girl by Neil Young. Oh, yeah. So this is, this is from Neil's second uh, solo album, although not, not technically a solo album now that he's joined with, with yeah, Crazy, Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse, right? Yeah. Uh, the album is Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. Yeah. This is the, uh, the opening track of it. Uh, Let's skip to just before the solo starts here. Yeah, 
one note solo. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> that is virtuosic. Yeah. Takes guts. <laughs> I, uh, I may have referenced that in a separate text between Jordan and another friend. Uh, specifically called out the Neil Young one note solo. <laughs> so, yeah, I, this immediately came to mind when, uh, when the topic was introduced. Um, just because it goes in the face of of the typical definition of virtuoso, mm-hmm. but Steve touched on this in in your introduction with can it also be defined as being true to yourself mm. and it in this situation I know you know if if you've listened to a lot of Neil Young, you know he's capable of other kinds of guitar solos mm-hmm. like he's got mm-hmm. some some raging mm-hmm. you you guys, he has like a two note and a three note solo <laughs> <It's true. laughs> yeah. Sometimes he's, his guitar range is kind of like morrissey's voice he can alternate between two notes <laughs> with the best of them <laughs> throw, throw in a third every now and then no i mean you got uh you got um cortez the killer you got like hurricane some of these face melting guitar solos mm. but i i love in this one i i think just with this album as a whole he was kind of flipping everyone the bird mm-hmm. uh, but particularly with, with this song um where he's taking this idea of guitar solo and virtuosity and impressiveness and even like studio perfection um part of which i think he was frustrated with his first album mm-hmm. his uh, where they did a ton of time in the studio, lots of overdubs, lots of trying to get things exactly right. And afterwards, he's like, I never want to make an album like that again. Mm-hmm. Um, so he just goes in a totally opposite direction, joins forces with Crazy Horse, who, all things considered, are not a great band. Right. You know, But they, they, have, a, <laughs> they have their place. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. They're great at what they do. Um, and they go in the, the studio, and it's more like performance-based you know they're just capturing the band live in the studio playing as as they play and then the solo comes up and it's just that one note mm-hmm. and he just <laughs> he just stays on it <laughs> and it's like screw you guys i'm going to do this my way mm-hmm. and i think that's really where neil is is the virtuoso is in not giving a rat's a mm-hmm. uh his whole career like he's going to do what he wants mm-hmm. and every other album he's going to go back to crazy horse and do that that uh, that thing and then he's also going to do some country he's going to do some uh some what what's Whatever the this notes for the you <laughs> this notes for you at the the yeah. blues stuff yeah. or the everybody's rocking transformer man yeah uh so he's he's made a whole career out of staying out of that rut mm-hmm. yeah but you know i mean when I think of Neil Young, see, Neil Young to me is the genius of Buffalo Springfield, <laughs> which is the group before, right before he went this. solo uh-huh. and before he went with Crosby, Stills, Nash. Uh, and, he, I mean, he was doing his own thing then, too, and he was into, it seemed like, some uh, studio, you know, sort of lavish studio things. I don't know if you've ever listened to Broken Arrow mm-hmm. by uh, Buffalo Springfield. That's... Again, just like nothing else, really, uh, certainly by Buffalo Springfield or of that time. And uh, 
and then so and then he sort of goes off and he does this stuff with more conventional i guess uh solo stuff with crosby stills nash he's doing the solo albums but when he breaks away from from buffalo springfield and he's not doing solo. that was the thing it seemed like there was always a rivalry between him and steve stills in uh Buffalo Springfield, at least, and and Crosby, Stills, Nash, you know, who's the lead guitarist here? And they mm. were just, they sort of were always going off in different directions. There was this sort of pushing against each other by pushing away from each other. And uh, did you know he was in a band with Rick James? Neil Young was? Yes. <laughs> no, I, I early on. It. I can no. believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Early, yeah. <laughs> I heard an That's interview wild. with him with uh, Rick Rubin. He talked about it. Anyway, yeah. I, lo- I I actually love that pick. That's uh, yeah. that's phenomenal. Yeah, no, here's that's a, a great, that's a great here's pick. a quote yeah. from Young uh, about this song. He says, "People say that it is a solo with only one note, but in my head, each one of those notes is different. <laughs> <laughs> the more you get into it, the more you can hear yeah. the differences. Which yeah. is all that matters. I can hear his voice. I can hear his voice saying that. It's like George yeah. Costanza saying, it's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> it's true, though, because everything that's going on around him is yeah. changing. Yeah. Yeah. And so his note, contextually, is different with it, each. Yeah. It, with it. It's like kinda, a, yeah. Yeah, jazz solo and the changes. Are right, that is true. It's like, find, find yeah. the one note that works with all yeah. the different yeah. chords. Yeah. That, there's a certain genius yeah. to that. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, yeah, but. it's being that that note is being it's an impressionistic uh, that is in a painting sense. So it's, you know, here's the same thing, but it's just being relit in different ways. It re- the it lighting reminds, around it changes. It reminds me of my favorite drum solo. Not ironically similar is a James Brown song where the drummer's going and doing his thing. And then he has this drum fill and he literally just plays the snare drum four counts. <laughs> ka, 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 ka. Mm. Or eight or whatever, but just like mm-hmm. in a row, and just the dynamic goes up. But it's just in the <laughs> midst of the groove and everything. You hear that, and it's like the most satisfying thing. It's hmm. just like this guy doesn't isn't showing off. I've never heard a drums drums drummer be like, okay, here's my two bars, and uh-huh. I'm just gonna play straight. You know, it was yeah. Anyway, that was that's a great one. Reminds me of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. nice. And I, I think this might have been <clears throat> the first time that anybody heard. Uh, old black, Neil's Neil's uh, Les Paul Gibson guitar. I don't I don't think he used it in the notes on this. It says it was newly acquired by him. Hmm. So he's uh, he's laying the foundations for grunge with this album <laughs> and all kinds of other things. Not the Beatles invented grunge. They did, but you know, <laughs> got it. Got it. Neil Neil's took a stepping a, stone. Took a step towards it. <laughs> all right, Steve. All right. Well, I feel like to round things out, round out the first round, I'm going to give the bass some love. Mm. Um, and I don't, I'm I'm going to screw it up, I'm sure, because there's lots of other better picks, maybe. <laughs> but what, for some reason, what immediately jumped into my mind when I started thinking about virtuosity and trying to think of non-vocal or guitar instruments was slap bass, you know, which kind of became a thing. I don't know. Was it early '80s or maybe maybe there were some precedents before that? Sure, but that's yeah. that's when I kind of really started to recognize it in like and then really came into its own on Seinfeld. <laughs> well, yeah, I think yeah. Nightcore. No, that, I think it was actually sure. Nightcore <laughs> pre Seinfeld. That's that's absolutely Northern Exposure. Yeah. Part of it. Larry like Graham. I, Larry Graham was the first, and he was in Sly and the Family Stone yeah, in yeah. 1960s. 60s, yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. That's where he started. 
Yeah, but I so obviously it has a, it has a longer trajectory, and the the two, the two I'm gonna I want to I want to pair two songs by two different bands with two different bassists, but that basically <laughs> have a short slap bass intro, which I think is very distinctive and kind of captures what I love about that the virtuosity. Uh, the first one ha- features Daryl Jones on bass who's currently the basis for the Rolling Stones, right? Has been mm. since 93. Mm. But before that, he you know did other things, including played with Miles Davis for a couple albums. And so I feel like I'm going to sneak in. I mean, what, you know, when we were thinking about virtuosity, and, I was, and we're, we're focusing on rock, I know. And with jazz, at least in many contexts, it's kind of like virtuosity is almost kind of like a given like if it's a professional jazz musician i mean yeah they're, they're going to be good they're going to be able to play lots of notes fast or whatever and whatever the but i kind of feel like well later miles davis it's kind of that jazz fusion there's definitely that mm-hmm. rock influence yeah so the album is is decoy and it, and it's the song um what is it let's see is that right make sure i got the song right but it's a song uh, so we got we got scope. This, this is an album that unless you're really into Miles Davis, you've probably never heard, right? Well, 1984. Decoy. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's one. It's maybe his fourth album after his kind of. He, he kind of has this mm-hmm. five year hiatus, and he comes back in '81, I think. And I think it's like the the third or fourth album in that run. But it's uh, both of these songs actually come from '84 too, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Your first year mm-hmm. at BYU? No. <laughs> Did you say? No. Uh, 85 was 85. my first year at okay, BYU. Okay. Uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Freaky Deaky? No, not Freaky Deaky. That's Deaky. right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what uh, happened. <laughs> no, I already told you what, what? it is. Oh, what okay. it what is. What it is. Okay, yeah. What That's it is. That's a great is. track. Yeah. Yeah. Mike Stern, uh, Schofield, John Schofield, yeah. yeah, and he kind of—it it seems like he co-wrote this tune with Davis, as, as he did. He wrote a couple of the other tunes. That's about it. He played pretty much plays that same lick throughout, and but but I love that opening and it's mm-hmm. so striking and uh, you know it's kind of unique. You, you don't often get a bass up until opening. the moment that Miles comes in. I would expect that to be a Chili Peppers song. I was gonna say you hear you hear the Red Hot Chili Peppers influence and yeah. and the Seinfeld influence <laughs> <laughs> and Primus maybe so and Primus 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 a little bit after like five years after that yeah yeah, yeah. and then another eighty four track as it turns out. I, it, I really, you know, these two tracks have a very clear spot in my mind, a very similar place because of that bass opening, and I didn't realize they were just they're from the same year, both 84. But uh, this is Sleepless by King Crimson, Tony mm-hmm. Levin on bass, great, you know, great bass player and known for his work with, with them, with King Crimson. But the opening of this, th- this was 
I think it's their best, their their most popular song ever of any iteration of King Crimson in terms of like, you know, popular Billboard charts actually got played on mainstream radio stations. You know, mm-hmm. as opposed to whatever. King Crimson had a song like that. This is it. (laughs) (laughs) Was released as a single, in fact, I think. Wow. So I don't know if you can find, if there's a version, there are different versions, remixes of this tune. I don't know if there's one that says, like, you know, single version or well i'm just gonna play album. the one called sleepless from the album three well, of a perfect okay, pair okay that's fine <laughs> <laughs> is it is the single different just make sure it's cranked <laughs> okay Like a Safety Brothers soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or a Michael or a Michael Mann movie. Robert Pattinson's in trouble and he's running out of time. <laughs> he is. He's gotta drink a thirty two ounce bottle of LSD. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, that's it. It's short, and I don't like. I said, there's. I'm sure there are other examples of like longer solos. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll add one to your list. I, I'll, I'm going to cross it off mine now because I had. I did have one bass player, um, Victor Wooten of Bella Fleck and the Fleck Tones and Victor Wooten fame. But uh, oh yeah, add the. You, do, you don't have to play it, but add the Sinister Minister to uh, that trifecta of mm. just bases. mind mind blowing mm. bass. Yeah, bass slapping. Yeah, I think there's just something you know unique about that sound that I I didn't I wasn't listening to a lot of you know to well to any probably Sly and the Family Stone in the early '80s you know my youth or whatever. So I think the sound is really unique and something that was new felt new you know like oh wow you can yeah. play the bass like that and it's kind of this combination of like drum set and bass you know because it's so rhythmic and the the sort of non pitched thumps you get in there with it. And and again, kind of has that illusion of like it sounds like it's more than one player in a way, even though it's, mm-hmm. it's very simple. Yeah. It's not like there's a lot yeah. going on, but it's like it's it has this more expansive effect. Like wow, how is one person doing all that stuff and keeping <laughs> yeah. it, holding it together? You know. Yeah. So anyway, mm-hmm. man, that King nice. Crimson show nice last year that was nice, oh. and that had Tony Levin. I think yeah. he was with them, right? <laughs> yeah. Did he play his stick? Doesn't he have like the bass stick? Yeah. It's just like he, yeah. he played all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I don't know what it all was. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, he's he's great. That was fun. All right, round one in the books. Yes, man. All right, I'll keep it moving. I'll talk less this time. Yeah. Um this one uh, my my first So admittedly when uh in the recorded episode that we listened to of, uh, of Dr. Hicks talking about Dylan. I loved that thought, but then I, I also took it as a challenge and mm-hmm. I thought, well, there's certainly some people that have taken this concept of lyricism mm-hmm. to, uh, to new levels. Hip hop, I think has been the natural extension of what Dylan was doing. And specifically you described like alternating, um, like, um, multiple syllabic lines versus uh shorter lines and then doing some creative stuff with that mm-hmm. uh i could have picked lots of one lots of uh i think contemporary or recent uh hip-hop artists the one i'm gonna go with is my my all-time favorite mf doom um he's if you imagine so he his he has 
become this really important figure in hip hop and his name, there's certain things in art that kind of become shorthand for cool MF doom. I think is one of those. Like if you find a fellow MF doom fan, you're immediately friends. Wait, are um, you wearing a shirt right yeah, now? Yeah, I am. I am absolutely cool. representing. Represent. And, uh, he, his most probably famous album was, a uh, an album he did under the moniker mad villain. It was him partnered up with a, a producer named, uh, mad lib. And if you imagine like hip hop as a, a ca- school cafeteria, Mad Lib and MF Doom would be kind of like the intelligent kind of art nerds that were sitting off to the side. They were never at the cool guy table, but they were always probably some of the smartest ones in the room. His stuff is kind of an acquired taste, so I'm curious what uh, what non hip hop fans will think of uh, of this but his delivery is very unique it almost feels dry but the one of the things that hip hop artists doing started doing i think like late 90s and beyond that changed the game was how they aligned their lyricism with the beat that they were rapping over so like early hip hop it was run dmc and LL Cool J and all of their words were on the beat. I'm the king of rock. There is none higher. Sucker MC, she call me sire. Like it's right on the beat. And Doom, Notorious, B.I.G., Andre 3000. They started doing these things where they would they would carry their rhymes across the bar, and it creates this. I think this illusion or this feel that that gets described as like smoothness. They're very smooth in their delivery, and it it makes it. So that it, the the rhyming is almost like f- separate, fluidly separate from the beat, but then it somehow continues to realign itself mm-hmm. with it, and it makes for kind of a cool effect. So, mm-hmm. play us a, a track called um, "Go with Great Day" from the Mad Villainy album. And this one's cool. It starts off, it sounds like it's going to be a traditional boom-bap hip-hop song, and then Mad Lib just turns it into something else completely. And then, I don't think you'll even have to edit this one. This one, I don't think, has any swears in it. So, ha! This guy. <laughs> Unbelievable. Get out of here. Oops, sorry, sorry, wrong one. Wrong one. That was, okay. a, that wow. was Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch doing good vibrations. Take that, Dylan. Gotcha. There we go. Looks like it's going to be a great day today To get some fresh air like a stray on a straightaway Hey you, got a light? now, nah, a Bud Light Early in the morning, face crud from like a mud fight Looky here, it's just the way the cookie tear Prepare to get hurt and mangled like Kurt Angle, rookie year The rocket scientist with the pocket wineless Some even say he might need some psychiatrist Doom, are you pondering what I'm pondering? Yes, but why would the darn thing be wandering? She's like a foundling, barely worth fondling My posse's on Broadway like Mama I want to sing Mad lays the bass like the race card Villain on the case to break shards and leave a face scarred 
groovy dude Not to prove to be rude But this stuff is like what you might put on movie food Uh, what is jalapenos? Get it like a whooping when you holler at your seniors Dollar, he can overhear the hashish finger He just came from over there, the grass is greener Last wish, I wish I had two more wishes And I wish they fixed the door to the matrix is mad glitches Spit so many verses, some time my jaw twitches One thing this party could use is more Booze, <coughs> put yourself in your own shoes And stay away from all the pairs of busted Tims he don't use You only keep them to decorate If you wanna peep them, select a date And bring a deep check like checkmate I kid you not, on the dotted line sign Ever since a minor, kids consider him some kind of Einstein On a diamond mine grind She was dumb fine, but not quite the type That you might wanna wine and dine Couldn't find a pen, had to think of a new trick This one he wrote in cold blood with a toothpick On second thought, it's too thick His assistant said, do him, you sick He said, true through acoustics Psycho, his flow is drowned in Lowry seasoning With micro power, he's sound and right reasoning It's easy as pie, 3.14 One more, one false move, and they done four That's it, you can kill it <laughs> So, wow. he, Doom is tough because he's it, It's like a I think that's part of the coolness factor when, when it clicks for somebody. It's like learning a new language. He builds like riddles inside of riddles, mm-hmm. tons of pop culture references. But for this, like for each album, he takes on a persona. This album, he's kind of adopting this villain mentality and it's kind of built in comic book uh, aesthetic. And he, in that song, he's bouncing between first person and third person, um, almost like a conversation with himself and building out this kind of this this comic book um, scenario environment. And I don't know, it, it just becomes this whole world that is really satisfying uh, once you once you mm. it kind of clicks for you. So mm, nice. Yeah. Doom, Doom's the best. Mm. <laughs> nice. Very, very nice. Yeah, I think. Uh, Maybe a year or two ago when we were doing this, I, I sent a link to a YouTube video of someone analyzing a certain Doom song, and they were kind of looking at the syllables and the, the way he was kind of rhyming within lines and between mm-hmm. and across the bar and things like that. It makes me think a little bit how you were describing of when like a jazz musician you know, learns how to play changes, and then they learn how to play outside of the changes, like the Stealing Dan thing, and they learn how to do things that are odd, mm-hmm. but that the person who's a, a fellow musician is like, oh my gosh, I know what they're doing, mm-hmm. but I want to learn how to do it. You know, it's it's like a next level in terms of uh, mm. lyricism, rhyming. Mm. Yeah, Very cool. Um, it's hard to nail it down. I've got my, I've got like, th- you know, two choices left. I'm going to, because you went with hip-hop, I'm going to stick with hip-hop, um, and go a different direction. Uh, MF Doom was on my my list of possibilities, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go with um, Lauren Hill, and you know she's interesting in that she's kind of she had this album in was it 97 or 98, Miseducation of Lauren Hill, yeah. and she had been with the the Fugees, the Refugee All Stars, and had you know success but then did this album that just was critically and commercially such a huge hit since then you know she's alive but she she as an artist she's kind of like just it's always been rumored is she gonna do this is she gonna do that like she had a verse on Nas's album recently but i don't know if she's done any albums besides like the unplugged uh mtv unplugged or vh1 unplugged or whatever but she had that album miss education of lauren hill and she was virtuosic in her kind of 
a, a form of hip hop that blended kind of R and B and rap together and doing both like the singing and the rhyming so well doing it uh, in a, in a musical genre that oftentimes is, has not been as welcoming of women artists mm-hmm. de- more so now, mm-hmm. but back then still wasn't. Right. Um, but she did it at the top and was good as good as anyone. Um, so let's go with the track. Everything is everything. I want to hear the verse from that. So go go ahead and start it off, and you, it'll be singing, and then, yeah. We about to step Extending across the atlas, I begat this. Flipping in together on the dirty mattress. You can't match this. Rapper slash actress, more powerful than two Cleopatras. Bomb graffiti on the tomb of Nefertiti. MCs ain't ready to take it to the Serengeti. My rhymes is heavy, like the mind of Sister Betty. El Boogie spars with stars and constellations. Then came down for a little conversation. Adjacent to the king, fear no human being. Roll with cherubims to Nassau Coliseum. Now hear this mixture with hip hop meets scripture. Develop a negative into a positive picture. Now everything, everything is everything. What is meant to be? What is meant to be? So good, and yeah. she—it's uh, a—it's in some ways it's a shame that she hasn't just like produced all this stuff. But on the other hand, it's kind of like maybe it was that was just the. That was it. She did. She I, did it. I think she became stuff. kind of dissatisfied with the music industry, and then she married Marley's son, and I think had a kid, and yeah. entered into the world of motherhood. And she's always kind of like Neil Young had that kind of authenticity, kind of the spiritual core. And yeah, she said enough stuff about like you know I'm not going to do any music if it's not like supposed to come out of me, kind of thing. Like, 
focused on raising her kid. And it does make you wonder how, like, how different it would be if, if the industry wasn't so male centric, especially like at the at the production level, like the the corporate, the ones that are paying for it, the ones that are uh, mm-hmm. running the studios. It's just so much harder for a woman to do it on her terms, you know, they, if if they're not financially independent or that's right, or whatever. Yeah, um, and I, I get the feeling that she she's not interested in playing the game. Yeah, playing you know? the and, games, yeah, yeah. So where where Neil is able to do that because of you know he achieved a certain financial status at some point and right. he's got the mm-hmm. the bro connections or whatever that, right oh neil yeah you can do whatever you want but <laughs> right 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 uh, it's uh, so much harder for, yeah, for think, women to take that path i think that's a good point is that that's her singing and rapping yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. She was really unique in that regard. She was known first as a rapper with the Fugees, and then this right, album right. was, I think, part of the reason it was such a monster hit is because it did blur the mm-hmm. lines between like pop and R and B, and really like good hip hop as well. She's she's uniquely gifted. There had been kind of a hip hop versus like hip hop people kind of looking down at R and B about uh, sing, singers and things and. And she just had the credibility and the virtuosity mm. to, to do both in mm. a way that mm. you couldn't deny. And there's yeah. some of the, er, you know, the studio coming in too with that track where it's, there's mm. some really cool yeah. layers yeah. Mm-hmm. and just to kind of like the, she was the, the megaphone yeah. or whatever small speaker voice right. of hers coming in and these different layers. She was like the also queen contributing to the harmonizing kind of with herself thing. too. Like mm-hmm. the, it's, yeah, really, multi, really multi good. track voice and stuff. Yep. Yeah, and I love the notion, and you hear it in. Uh, I'm trying to think of other examples, but when you have these uh, sort of hammer stroke pseudo orchestral chords throughout the whole thing, which is like we're taking the symp- symphony and uh, and uh, coercing it into a new, <laughs> yeah, a new texture here, so that it has this sort of weird seriousness that is also being mocked in a way but being co-opted at the same time it's it's such an interesting thing that that i hear in a lot of things uh you know of that generation i suppose but i I love when i hear that you get it in uh I think it's sort of in the, in the gangsters paradise thing, isn't it? That which yeah, is based is. on the on the on the Stevie Wonder thing, which actually is a hinge into my next pick, if I may. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so I want to go to to uh, to Stevie Wonder's uh, "Don't You Worry About a Thing" oh, from nice. Inner Visions, and started maybe two minutes and thirty seconds in. Um, I guess. <sighs> You know, again, this may be sort of pedestrian, but as as uh, Brother Ricks knows, Doctor Ricks knows, I have many. Uh, mottos. Please call me Doctor Ricks. <laughs> I have many mottos in my life. One one of them is every every decision in life is one about uh, breadth versus depth. And uh, with Stevie Wonder, you know, I I actually became aware of him when he <laughs> did Fingertips Part Two, you know, play this whole harmonica thing in '62 or whatever that was, you know, which everybody say yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's a live recording, and 
it was little Stevie Wonder then, and, and we thought, oh, yeah. this is a flash in the pan. <laughs> and now we know uh, uh, Steve and I, Dr. Ricks and I both uh, uh, have a former student. Jeff Lovell was a student of yours, wasn't he, as well? He, he was just finishing up when I came when here. Came, so, yeah, I never I, I mean, never really worked that closely except that. fantastic uh, yeah. jazz player. His um, his son Clark is right now in my theory class. Really, his son Clark, who plays trumpet and he's a music well, major at did, BYU. His dissertation was on Stevie Wonder. <laughs> oh, okay, so it's like wow, this the, the transformation uh, here uh, from you know these early rumblings when I was a kid. Well, anyway, I just been picking this track because uh, just the virtuosity of Stevie Wonder, who is in this track playing all the instruments i mean he wrote it and writing in addition to performing is a kind of virtuosity of course but but that he wrote it he's singing it and he's playing drums really well and he's playing keyboards really well and he's playing a bass it's a bass uh, like a moog bass you know uh really well and singing with himself of course in the multi-tracking and you hear this, and it's like, this is an amazing group. <laughs> and, uh, so the virtuosity of... of Never mind just, being able just, to do all that without you know, sight. Be, yeah, it just the, 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 the polyphony of oneself, I guess, is, uh, is a particular kind of virtuosity. And uh, I guess I just wanted to nod in that direction with this track. Because if you start about 2.30... We'll take it for maybe a minute and a half, okay. and uh, that'll maybe two minutes. And and you, you listen and you think this is great stuff, and and it's all, you know. He, uh, I think the the album before this, I think was music of my mind. Was that right? Anyway, but th- that's what he got into that phase. You know, he sort of moved out of the regular Motown, Tamla, you know, circuit, the Barry Gordy thing, and started doing his own imagination and this inner visions is a wonderful example of that i'm just gonna do it all myself because it's all in there don't you worry about a
So good. I mean, what more do you need? So right? amazing. <laughs> so, what can you say? I mean, uh, yeah. uh, um, what's not to like? So good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure we know. You can think of other artists that have have done similar things. Sure. Even even coming from like, he didn't start out playing every instrument, but then no. Get, gets into that. I mean, like you know, go back to Les Paul and Eddie Cochran, but yeah. Holly. And so, I mean, it's a thing that. Once you could do that, record with your, you know, and it's literally setting up one machine playing while you're doing it. It's interesting, too, even to think of, like, contemporary. Like, I think it's even maybe more common now because of, like... Mm people's access to easy access to recording tools. So think of, like, a Tame Impala or something. But if you go Tame Impala's best song side by side with that... It's they're they're not even in the yeah. same universe. Mm. Yeah, like, it's like mo- most musicians that do that kind of thing are really good at one of the instruments and satisfactory it, at the others. It's probably it's almost a shame that he's too good at it because I like <laughs> no, I, no, I, no, I know I like when somebody's really good at something and it looks effortless. I think you I think it's easy to underestimate like the craft behind it. Mm-hmm. And I've never I guess I've never really paused to think about him doing all of that mm-hmm. on his own like mm-hmm. i just enjoy the music mm-hmm. and i think it's this is just made like everything else is made yeah. and then to think of one person one man doing that is kind of mind-blowing but it's all i mean for him it's sort of all one instrument right. it's all harmonic i mean it's all you know uh it, it's one voice just being you know expressed through different media uh, i will say that he's not playing the shaking instruments on it the the, the percussion the rattling there that's not him. oh my goodness <laughs> so i know what a faker no. <laughs> did the did the the maraca player get get proper credit in the liner notes uh, I, i'm not sure i hope so <laughs> I, i'm particularly impressed with his drumming on that yeah because like, he's a good drummer. like i yeah. think of you know paul mccartney's he does some albums where he played everything yeah and even on some of the Wings albums, mm. the drummer couldn't make it or something. So Paul's Paul's mm-hmm. doing the drums, mm-hmm. but there's nothing in those drums. You're like, whoa, who's this drummer? Oh, mm. Paul's doing it. Yeah, no, it's yeah. like, oh, okay, yeah, Paul's doing a fine yeah. job. Yeah, but here, like, who's drumming there? Stevie's doing that yeah. too. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. man, yeah. I'm glad that you picked him. I thought of him and thought, oh, I hope Stevie Wonder gets picked. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm going to go kind of in a similar geneal- genealogical direction. Uh, this is an artist that I was not aware of until about two years ago, a year or two ago. Um, I've already shared, uh, shared some love previously with, for Marvin Gaye, particularly what's going on. Um, and it was while I was listening to that album a lot, you know, gradually I'm like, who the heck is this bass player? Mm. Who is doing this? Mm. And I start looking it up. Who's Marvin Gaye's bass player? James Jamerson. James yeah, Jamerson. Yeah. Jamerson. Yeah. And come to find out, uh, he's he's played on all of these. I mean, he's he's mm. a guy that even though most people, unless you know, I didn't know know him about him until two years ago. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, I would guess he's unfamiliar by name to the majority of the population, mm-hmm. and yet the majority of the population is already pretty familiar with his work mm-hmm. with the uh, yeah. the amount of hits that he's played on 
Um, so he was one of the, the studio, part of the Funk Brothers, the studio band for Motown Records. Um, says that as a, ses- a session musician, he played on 23 Billboard number one hits, as well as 56 R&B number one hits. Uh, in its special issue, the 100 Greatest Bass Players, Bass Player Magazine ranked Jamerson number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the most influential bass guitarist. In 2020, Rolling Stone magazine also ranked him number one mm. on its list of 50 greatest bassists of all wow. time. And yet the shame of it is he was never, just as you asked about the <laughs> Morocco player in the liner notes, he was never listed. He was mm. never credited until 1971 on Marvin Gaye's album, mm. where Marvin Gaye, uh, let's see what, yeah, first time he was credited, on a major Motown release. It was in 1971 for his performance on Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. He was noted as the incomparable James Jamerson on the record sleeve. <laughs> so all these other hits before that, nobody knew him by name. I, I don't know. Were you aware of him at the time? Or was this... I'm sure you, well, you heard the Motown songs, but were yeah, the members of the... Yeah, I wasn't aware of him at the time at all. But, I mean, if you go back and listen to things like... Stevie Wonder, if you listen to... Um, I was made to love her, for that, example. That's one I'm going to play, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that line, it, that bass line in that is, is uh, yeah, it's virtuosic for yeah. sure. So just, just to get a feel of just the, the influence of him, I wanted to play probably three, three songs, just, just little clips from, from three of them. Let's start, let's start with that. Stevie Wonder, I Was Made to Love Her from 1967. Let's take a look at Sign Sealed Delivered. Mm. Also, Stevie Wonder. about reach out i'll be there for tops and your life is filled with much confusion until happiness is just an illusion and your world around is crumbling down darling reach out for me reach out for me Ain't no mountain high enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's EP privilege. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. Shoot. James Jamerson could have his own wing, his own Hall of Fame wing yeah. for his own yeah. songs. I know. <laughs> He's yeah. like. And the, the list goes on and on. I mean. He's got uh, K 
Can't Hurry Love, Diana Ross and the Supremes, the, you know, same play, old song. You know, Can't Hurry Love, I want you to play that one if you, if you were to say it, because okay. he does a thing in that that is so incredible that isn't doesn't have to do with the uh, you know these wonderful lines that he's creating, but the way he switches the bass note ahead of the chord switch. Um, I, I, well, you'll hear what how this goes. Um, Let's check it out. Dump, dump, dump. Yeah, it's like he the, just, the half beat before yeah, he te- the piano does it. anticipates the next chord, a lot of times anticipates the next chord by just playing the root of that chord before it's come along. And it's a, it's a way that he intuited to just to drive the music forward when <laughs> there's really Amazing. nothing. That, I mean, That's it's such cool. a simple concept, uh, but it, it's one of the great things in that particular track. I had uh, I had him on my list. I had him and Carol Kay as like these these forgotten bass players that everybody's heard. She's the one. With the what was that band called? Well, she did stuff with everybody. I mean, the, her oh, it was Wrecking Crew. Yeah, the Wrecking Crew. The Wrecking Crew and the Funk Brothers oh, yeah. were like yeah. the yeah. the kind of the definitive house bands mm. that were creating everything. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah. Nice. So what uh, what stands out to me with, with him that I you, you hear it in, in all these songs and these these aren't even just cherry picking the songs. Oh, I yeah. mean, it just goes on yeah. and on. Yeah. And particularly that these are the intention of these songs is to be number one hits. Like these are pop songs. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not. We're not talking King Crimson or Rush or Miles Davis or these things that are just trying to be really impressive. As far as playing ability, like, but he's he's taking the he's bringing this to these pop songs, bringing his mm. his jazz influence. He he played in a lot of jazz clubs growing up, um, and was I think he was one of the early adopters of the electric bass. He started playing upright, and then mm-hmm. he gets hired by Motown in I think it's '59. He starts working as a session musician for them, and pretty early on gets a a Fender Precision bass and. Mm. Um, but he's bringing all this musicality to it and the way that he can work his bass lines as if they're almost melodies and they just fit perfectly mm-hmm. within these pop songs without being distracting, but just bringing so much to it uh, just just blows my mind. And I, I think it mm-hmm. it's a precursor to a lot of things that, that happened afterwards where yeah. where music got a little more bass-oriented with, yeah. with funk music and, and those kinds of things. But at the time, the bass was, you know... It was roots and fifths, and mm-hmm. that, that was mostly it. Well, my, you know, McCartney says that hearing, uh, you know, Beatles were really devotees of Motown, and and McCartney focused on James Jamerson and realized, oh, this is actually a melodic instrument. It's not a root-based instrument. You know, just mm-hmm. giving the bass notes, as it were, but it's a whole layer in itself, and that affected the way he began to play in mid sixties. Okay. Yeah, cool, love it. Great hits. Um, we'll, we'll, we're going to count that as two of my picks. Oh. <laughs> we don't. Have, well, okay, you're the boss. I, I played a lot. We'll see. Um, 
Yeah, I think a pick I'm going to go with fits fits the theme. I'm going to go back to hip hop and the 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 referenced comment about Dylan and uh, Mike's radio program. But what I got thinking about or focused in on was um, the rhythmic aspects or implications. I think of what Mike was saying about Dylan about his ability to kind of. Uh, you know, expand or contract the length of a line or the number of syllables to sort of fit in with the similar length of verse or accompaniment or whatever, and that sort of virtuosity. And so I'm not, man, I'm, I I'm feel like I'm scratching the surface with my uh, rap hip hop knowledge. It's it's uh, I'm certainly at the beginning stages of continuing to expand my knowledge but someone that immediately came to mind from uh, th- that i've listened to a bit and know is uh buster rhymes mm-hmm. and it's more about rhythm right it's more and you there's been a reference to like outside playing in terms of the harmonic changes i think he does a lot of interesting stuff that i think is kind of like outside rhythm like mm-hmm. he's doing really funky mm-hmm. tuplets or accents that just don't fit <laughs> the regular beat mm-hmm. but then he'll lock back in um i mean the most famous, well, not not the most famous, the, the one that comes to mind most readily, and I think it's a more well-known track of his, is Woo-Ha, Got You All in Check. Uh, but that's mainly just in the kind of beginning little little clip. So I'm hoping to play sneak two tracks in here. I want to just hear, just play like the opening 30 seconds of that, and just, it's it's so fun. When I step up in the place, say yo, I step correct. Got you all in check. I got that head nod shit that make you break your neck. Got you all in check. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd love to try some rhythmic dictation on some of so I was like, oh man, what what kind of tuplets do I need to sort of accurately show where he is compared to the beat? But a, a track that I just fell in love with, I gotta I gotta give a shout out to my crew here for introducing me to a lot of this hip hop stuff. The the Mos Def album, Black on Both Sides. I just I love I love that album, and probably my favorite track is is the one he does with. Buster Rhymes, um, which is I had it memorized. Um, do it now, uh, do it now, baby. But here's the thing: uh, I just want to at least make sure we hear the second verse. But I don't know. I, I didn't do my homework like Mike to know where that starts. But if we just hear it from the beginning, I think what's interesting here is that most Dev is definitely more of just a traditional rapper. Like he's he's pretty much on the beat. Uh, but but then you can kind of hear him in contrast to when. Buster Rhymes comes in, and especially in the second verse, he just like has some lines that are just so in- weird rhythmically. Okay, 
okay? How you feel? Feeling great. What you want? I want to death. What's up with you? You know my steed. Chewing this. Suck it loud. Black and proud. Ain't no time to hesitate to get Do it now. Boss or boss. What I want? How you feel? Feeling great. What you want? I want to do with the death. What up with you? You know my steed. Chewing this. Suck it loud. Black and proud. Ain't no time to hesitate at the gate. Do it now. Yo, Smeal. Me and Buster Remo make peligro. The two hottest Negroes and those Estados Unidos. Hotter than Reno when discovered by Bugsy Seagull. I'm black like Don Cheeto. Shout power to the people. Reprise to be like the lifeline on the Evo. The raw sugar cane neutral sweet never equal. If you in a Benzino or your mother's Buick Regal, I get up like Chino Shout. Anyway. That was awesome. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I forgot about that track. I need to revisit that album. That whole album's incredible. Busto is, he's fun because he's such a force. He's like, so he started off Leaders of the New School, then he was doing his solo stuff. Tribe brought him in on, I think, Scenario. Most Def worked with him. But he's like, he's like the most, like the most concentrated caffeinated beverage you can find <laughs> and you just unleash him in the studio and it, there's so much energy behind what he's doing it's almost shocking like like i remember the first time i heard um woo-ha it like i i remember sitting back like it felt like i got punched and and that's he brings that energy every time and he's saying as many words as he possibly can in his verse and he's bust is bust is fantastic <laughs> yeah very cool good pick yeah am i up round, round three, three. Right. final round final round all right um this one i'm gonna try to maybe key off a little bit of jordan's uh last pick and call i want to give credit to somebody that I think part of her, so female artist uh, from the 70s, I think she's really good. I, I think she's really ta- talented as a, as a musician, as an artist, as a performer. And I think she has some virtuosity in her vocals. I think they're, they're very unique. But I think also part of her virtuosity is um, her persona and also being uh, ahead of her time on on things one of the i i think there's some cases of virtuosity where in the moment it's obvious like anybody can look at it and go we're seeing something we've never seen before this is like a space alien that was sent to earth doing something we've never seen before and then i think there's other forms of virtuosity that maybe aren't appreciated in the moment but then in hindsight you look at them and you go Okay, that was actually more influential than we we may have realized. And I think this is a case of that. I think she's starting to get more credit than she did at the time. But I think she was a little bit maligned in part because she was a female in a a male-centric business. I'm going to call out uh, Betty Davis former wife of miles davis for a year she was uh famously too wild for miles davis um she's uh i think she's considered a funk artist but she really kind of defies genre did i get it right you got it right i had well done um and she was she was i think a little bit maligned she was almost too much for people. She was very bombastic, very overtly sexual in her lyrics and her performance. You can see uh, the influence she had on artists like Prince, um, 
Madonna, uh, all the way up into like the kind of the, the loud outspoken, uh, female hip hop performers of today. A lot of hip hop has finally kind of latched on to what she was doing, but I think I have a track that kind of encapsulates who she was. And, and I think you can see the, the virtuosity of, of just her as a, as a force. I think she died uh, just last year, I think. Anyway, go Betty Davis, play the song. Uh, they say I'm different. She does this cool thing. She almost plays her voice. like It's almost like a, like a blues guitar. Um, it's pretty raspy and she does some cool stuff with it, but you can hear just all that attitude, all that persona in there. She spit it's nothing boogie Tell I'm on drag Spit on They say I'm different Cause I eat shit lens And I can't help it I was born and raised on a That's right every morning After slop the hogs And they be getting off Humping the jolly hooker The baby king and Jimmy Ray rock on that And that's why They say I'm different And that's why Anyway, she was, she was blind at the time The industry didn't know what to do with her I think she only released like three albums in that 70s run Not particularly uh, acclaimed and um, I think she made pretty much everybody around her nervous, <laughs> including <laughs> Miles Davis, who she was married to. Um, but she really is the, the prototype of, uh, you know, I, I think an attitude that Brandon alluded to. I, I think there was only certain types of personalities that could really, as a female through and, and say I'm going to do what I want to do in this in this in this industry and it, it unfortunately um, you know probably silenced a lot of voices we could have otherwise had but we mm. have this cool library of uh, mm. at least she she continued to make stuff and she worked with incredible artists she had incredible taste she was always part of the the kind of the culture um, of of rock and musicians connected to to a lot of different musicians from like Hendrix to Davis to um even musicians she worked with I think I, that may have been Larry Graham on that track she she worked she had really good taste with who she worked with but um I think she was she was just too far ahead of her time I don't think the world was ready for for her for her brand for what she was doing but in hindsight you, like Janelle Monet has referenced her as like a key influencer of of what Monet's doing now and um, just kind of a, a cool uh, I think retro retroactive appreciation of the 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 virtuosity and just kind of the force that she was awesome nice yeah I mean her voice it makes me think of I think that was your radio program where you're talking about you know the mm. the 
or maybe it was even just in here at the beginning, the you know sound of the distorted electric guitar mm-hmm. maybe finding its way into mm-hmm. influencing the voice or mm-hmm. or and and it probably goes both ways right the right. guitar yeah, trying to imitate more vocal sounds yeah. but yeah her voice you can just hear all those modulations where it gets mm-hmm. gets gritty mm-hmm. gets yep. tight yep. it opens up yeah, and gets, that girly stuff you know <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, there I'm, you go, Betty Davis. <laughs> I feel like I Betty Davis. I'm not, I can't remember wasn't hearing aware of her. Of her. Yeah, and it's uh-huh. like I love her work in Golden Girls. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, right. That's it's a it's wild to think of how many artists have have not been and she could definitely do because of things like their gender or and, and she whatever. was unquestionably overtly um, vulgar and sexual at, at times, uh, which has you know always been uh, uh, well, yeah. I mean, all the way back into uh, early blues. Th- that's sure. been that that's been part of the the aesthetic of of certain types of of music. Uh, but it it obviously makes people uncomfortable too, which I think is by design. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I've got I've got to pick between two. Um, I kind of want to give one of mine to Brandon since he's. I'm just. <laughs> I've got, I've, How do you know gonna, he'll take it? I know he won't. Well, he he likes this uh, musician, but I'm gonna let Brandon do his own thing. I'm just gonna have to pick one. <laughs> Brandon, I'm gonna, I'm gonna we've done two. a lot of uh, good R&B and soul, but I'm gonna keep with it because I want to take this into the direction of someone who's it's not a it's not virtuosity because of specific musicianship, but because of in the world of rock music and a lot of art. I think a lot of us don't like being preached to or moralized to, but there's someone who can do it and you like it and you, it inspires you and it's Marvin Gaye, whether it's uh, what's going on or, you know, that whole album, um, sexual, healing. sexual healing. Absolutely. <laughs> but, no, that, but the year after that, that album, 1972, he had another album and it didn't get released. Mm. Um, they released a couple songs from it, but they didn't release the album. It was the follow-up to what's going on. It's called, uh, is it called I'm the Man or You're the Man? What's it called? I'm the Man, I think. Mm. But he has a song on it called uh, Piece of Clay, where he's basically telling parents how to how to be better parents, which all parents love, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you listen to this, and I hear, hear this, and, and in my job, a lot of times I'm working with parents trying to help them learn how to, you know, without telling them to be a better parent, learn how to, like, understand their kids and work with their kids and and stuff. But this song is such a beautiful example to me. And it's like, part of me is like, how do you, how does a popular musician uh, remain credible and, and do this moralizing thing, you know, and be, like, almost preaching and then have it come across? Because there's a lot, we all know the songs... You know, I mean, you have John Lennon's Imagine. It's a great song, but I think it's not—it's not great because people are like, "Oh, John Lennon is is such like I just want to follow wherever he wants me to do morally." You know what I mean? And maybe the same with Marvin Gaye, but um, but somehow for me, he pulls it off. Whereas even like uh, I love the Stevie Wonder song um, "Heaven Help Us," right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, songs like that come across as corny in retrospect, mm-hmm. even if they have a good message. So it's like, how do you do a good message, a moral mm-hmm. message? Mm-hmm in a pop or rock song and yet you listen to it and you're like moved so i've set it up 
so it probably won't work on you guys. <laughs> but, uh, Piece of Clay by Marvin Gaye. I'm, uh, I'm always looking for good advice from celebrities and musicians. It's, it's, exactly. <laughs> yeah, this, this checks all the boxes for Exactly. Me. Especially ones who write. Right. Let's get right. on and sexual healing. Yep. And, yep. Hey, give it a chance. Here it comes. Father, stop criticizing your son. Mother, please leave your daughters alone. Don't you see that's what's wrong? Be their own piece of clay. Oh, everybody wants somebody to be their own piece of clay. We all talk of kindness, but it's only only a word. Truly, brother, turn on sister. In this cruel, cruel world That's what's wrong With all with this world today Everybody wants somebody To be their own piece of the day oh, Everybody wants just to clarify, are you saying his area of virtuosity is giving unsolicited advice? It's preaching. It's, mo- it's moral. It's moralizing. That's yeah. what it is. I, f- yeah. I felt it, even though I've heard it so many times. Yeah. I hear, hear his yeah. voice, and he's like, Father, stop. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll stop. Yeah. It's like, you're right. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. He's, uh, yeah, Marvin Gaye, always, to me, always is church. I mean, I'm, I'm talking black church, and I speak as someone who actually played piano in a black church in East Palo Alto, California, when I was uh, 15-ish, I think. Um, he said, yeah, it always goes, with Marvin Gaye, it always goes back to church. Yeah. And ironic how he... Even sexual healing. I'm <laughs> yeah, saying, it does. It's, it it is. Does. it's a yeah. healing service, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's. Yeah. I'm just saying, whatever else is brought in there, the church is there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome, huh. his vo- and his voice and that guitar. Yeah. I mean, there's other elements. Yeah. So did that song? That song never got released. Do you know it's on this album that was released just three years ago on what would have been his 80th birthday? Mm. And then, but when I looked it up on YouTube Music the other day, it came up also on like a compilation greatest hits. Mm. So it might have been released there, but but it was me, never released on a. On no, a, it wasn't until three years ago. It to me, it's a deep cut that shouldn't yeah. be a deep cut. Like mm-hmm. that's yeah. that's an amazing song. Yeah. It's a beautiful song, and the message to me is solid in the I, sense. It of was like, interesting. I, I obviously yeah. made my tongue in cheek comment because that's what I do. But uh, as I sat and listened to it, I, I did. I <laughs> myself doing the same thing i was like hey you know he's right this is the same thing this is the same thing i'm telling parents in the school like when i talk to him like yeah "Yeah, just stop (laughs) the the guitar scream note 
Yeah. That, that was that long. Was virtuosic. That was, it, yeah, yeah, it kind of seemed like a a loop or something, but it, I think it was a held. Yeah, it was <laughs> held. That yeah. was like, wow, yeah. that was long. Well, and then the organ comes in, cool. to your point about church. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. that's oh, a, yeah, like church, they yeah. were, they, I think what I read about this album is they were saying, this is going to be the next what's going on this is going to be the next socially conscious mm-hmm. what's going on mm-hmm. and then he had like a different a difference of opinion with barry gordy or something after the first song was released marvin gay didn't want to release any of any of the others and mm-hmm. so wow yeah it just was released three years ago but it, and i remember seeing it I was like oh my gosh marvin gay's got a new album that came out from 72 <laughs> like you know like prime marvin gay mm-hmm. and uh yeah i i think it's a great song and and yeah, it's uh, it's it is interesting to me how so much art, whether it's film, you know, where it's like we don't really want to be preached to, mm-hmm. and yet there's mm-hmm. times where we do when mm-hmm. it hits us and we're mm-hmm. like we feel compelled, and it's like okay, and Marvin Gaye can do that. Yeah. But that is the, I mean, that is the virtuosity of personality or whatever. I mean, we see right. the same thing in movies. Yeah. Like, there's some directors will accept it from, and then there's mm-hmm. others where you're like. Don't no, tell me what. Don't to, tell yeah, me. Don't what to manipulate do. my emotions that way. And, and I don't know Spielberg. what. It, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but there is something where where somehow you're just you are willing to to hear. There's it. a certain like earning of the moral authority or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is either. But it is interesting and, and it's beautiful when you when you feel it and love it. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, y- you know, uh, one of the things that I guess a lot of these choices have involved. Uh, is uh, surprises sometimes we're trying to surprise each other with oh here's the thing yep. think about it this <laughs> way <what> <laughs> and, and uh i think and so i'm gonna kind of do that too i i'm gonna need probably about three minutes of music on this one um but virtuosity a lot of times is the surprise of what you decide not to do that you're expected to do and this came up before we were talking about the the drum solo that's just you know hitting the quarter notes or whatever. Um, but this is uh, this is from uh, Michael Jackson's funeral, two thousand nine. This is John Mayer, uh, and uh, he comes up. Uh, you know, everyone in the funeral they're doing Michael Jackson songs, and it comes up John Mayer, uh, Human Nature. And I thought, well, I'd like to hear John Mayer sing Human Nature. I think that would be. A, a good thing. I'm a big John Mayer fan. And so he comes on stage and uh, it's, it's, it, this virtuosity is in three parts that are quite distinct, but uh, they all rely on what he decides he not only is not going to do, but I think in some ways I can't do this. You go back to that old expression, uh, discretion is, is the better part of valor. You know, it's like, I, how am I going to pay tribute? I can't do it by singing. So he first plays, as you'll hear, a sort of finger-picking version of a really nice, tasteful, instrumental solo version of verse and chorus of human nature. And then the band comes in with the well-known, at least, you know, from Thriller, it's on Thriller, right? That, that track, uh, uh, Synthesizer sound you're thinking oh i guess he's going to start singing it now but he doesn't and then the background singers come in and do the chorus but he doesn't he just plays the guitar and then what he does just by taking the whole thing up an octave on the guitar in the next verse is where you realize oh my gosh now it's not just 
being tasteful and reverent, now it's wailing. The sorrow comes out. And but the whole thing is I think of we brought up Schoenberg earlier, you know, the the end of uh, Moses and Aaron, the Schoenberg opera. Um O Wort das mir fällt. That's Moses. O word that fails me. And it's like I can't sing this song. That's there's something de- uh demeaning about me singing this song. And so what he does with it is to me the idea uh, is virtuosic. And then the way he plays it so understated is uh, until he gets to that as I say that sort of wailing uh last verse.
just remember, you know, the the. By the way, you 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 can kind of hear it in there that he's playing it. He's finger picking it the whole time. He's playing just with his fingers, and right before that last sort of uh, denouement, that's just sobbing. You know, I mean, there's what you know, just these sort of outbursts. He runs over and grabs the pick and and starts playing with his pick to get that that extra edge of sound. But I, I just remember seeing that. And, and, you know, some of these, with all of us, there's a lot of nostalgia. It's, you know, I remember when I heard this or, you know, but, but at that moment, of course, it's like, this is Michael Jackson died, you know, and it's like, this is ridiculous, 50 years old and, and et cetera, whatever else you want to say about Michael Jackson. I remember seeing that and just being completely devastated by that, you know, what is he going to do with this? How can he do this? And he just did that. And it was so, I mean, it just floored me at the time. And it's still, uh, it's, it's quite uh, it's gripping hmm. to me. And and so, uh, you know, it's not virtuosity like we normally think of it, but just that decision to go in that direction, to to pull back from the stuff he could do, and do that, I thought was uh, quite magnificent, actually. Yeah. You know, like having having the presence of mind to know the the time and the place and the yeah. situation. And yeah. Perfectly fitting. And 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 quite different from everyone else at the funeral. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, um, not not a put down to them, but you know, everyone else wanted to just do their. You know, I'm going to go all out, right. and this was going all in. Virtuosic mm. choice. Yeah. yeah, that yeah. was that was like yeah. mor- mourning as much as celebrating. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. That was cool. Yeah. Um, I I just want to reference in uh, you know thinking of virtuosos, and one um, one thing that was kind of a highlight during the the worst parts of the the pandemic lockdown and all that kind of stuff was the uh the back and forth between dave grohl and mandy bushnell <laughs> this little 10 year old drummer uh so you think of you know the these kids you think of little stevie wonder and the, these kids that um get these skills at, a, at an early age um and i i don't know that nandy's gone on to do re- recordings or anything yet but certainly has has that potential but um it was just so fun seeing their their exchanges on youtube back and forth their drum challenges mm. um and she was so funny about it and dave Grohl was also so funny and just the way that he would he'd play along with it and so i think that that was just fun seeing them them take their their musical skills but also show uh, just people being good to each other during the, this hard time, this kind of worldwide hard time. Uh, I just want to play a tiny clip from eventually he invites her to join the Foo Fighters in concert. So this is mm-hmm. Nandy playing Everlong with the Foo Fighters <laughs> live in, in L.A. We'll celebrate this moment, this incredible reunion. Well, not reunion, we never met. We're going to do this right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
part of it is celebrating her, uh, you know, impressive accomplishments at an early age. But I also just love the <laughs> the uh, the fun spirit about it, the charity. And, and, it, uh, it was one of those <laughs> things. I was I was captivated by the whole exchange as well. Um, I really like Dave Grohl. I don't like the Foo Fighters music, uh, but I really like Dave Grohl. But he is such. And I think he's probably a, a, a virtuoso in this. He is like one of the great emissaries for rock and roll, just in general. Like like mm. preserving it, maintaining it, and encouraging it. He had an eleven year old girl from the United Kingdom that challenged him to a drum competition <laughs> via the internet, and he was a good sport. Mm. And it turned into this really heartwarming thing. And, and he is, and they I think, try and match each other's. Clothes yeah. And I stuff. think he is really authentic <laughs> in, in his, his hope that rock and roll lives, that it continues on, you know, across generations. And, and he, I think he really believes in what it, it did and means to him. And he wants to, to see it, continue continue and do what it does and so yeah. it, it was it was a super mm. cool moment i hadn't mm. even thought of that that's a, a great choice <laughs> and, it, and it shows just how fun music can be mm. playing playing together playing music together uh, and she is really good she's gifted yeah. mm. super good <laughs> <laughs> she does she has a whole series on youtube you can follow <laughs> cool nice okay nice bring us home wrap steve. it up steve well i'm gonna come a full circle a bit I'm gonna. I'm picking a track that that I owe to, or that I was introduced to by Mike. Uh, it's a '60s rock pick, um, a garage pick, uh, and and the reason I know this track is because uh, when I was Mike's student, he would always give me tips about you know you should buy this album or here's a good composer or whatever, and. I he you might not remember this Mike though you might you you came to me and I can't remember if it was when I was taking the rock class or not it might have been but you said you know there's a three CD set for sale right now at Crandall Audio called <laughs> called Sixties Rock uh, and it's it's an amazing three D set three CD set it's got you know one one is British one is. Uh, American and one is like album or FM or I can't remember what it's what it's called yeah. and but but it, it includes so many great tracks you know Jefferson Airplane House Puneal Corners uh, just uh, Tim Buckley Buzz and Fly mm. all these amazing tracks from that era uh, Expecting to Fly Neil Young that mm. one all and just kind of introduced me to so much music of that of that era. But the one that really that one of those that really stood out for for its vocals is Thirteenth uh, Floor Elevators. You're mm-hmm. gonna miss me, mm-hmm. and that's that's maybe a deep cut for some. I know it made an appearance in the <laughs> the John Cusack film High Fidelity oh, yeah. in kind of a prominent moment. So I, I'm guessing some people might know from there. But um, I, and I know we got to go. We got a hard exit coming up here. But you're all right. Uh, uh, the 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 thing. This kind of harks back to obviously '60s rock, but also uh, Mike's original radio program that we keep referencing, and him talking about vocals. And so, I think for me, there, there's definitely like a wow factor of just like, oh my gosh, I love the way this track sounds, but I love this vocalist screaming or whatever he's doing. <laughs> it, it's just it's so great and awesome. But but I 
something that I had come to that I came to love, and I love bands like I like when you know when Robert Plant does it with Led Zeppelin. I love it in the Pixies, and Frank Black is probably my my favorite that does it. Is that ability to modulate the voice between you know screaming and yelling, and then actual singing and that more kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, th- so this is maybe an earlier you know this is maybe a precursor to that that ability the ability to kind of scream but also to sort of sing i don't know if 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 i don't even know the name of the lead singer for this band you probably I do my Mike... erickson okay isn't it yeah uh probably and um 13 floor elevator yeah and i don't know yeah. I, I don't know that he has a great voice but i i do love the opening of this track and then the way he can kind of go back and forth between the kind of screaming and singing Keep it going. <laughs> it's great. good. I just, it's got a little Van Morrison in him, like yeah. a Please Don't Go. Yeah. I have a documentary. I'll have to lend you a DVD documentary of Rocky Harrison called You're Going to Miss Me. That's the name of it. Because he was he was mentally I don't, Steve, I don't, I don't Mentally think, ahead of his time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think yeah. as many people are onto them as you think they are. I think they're still yeah. an underrated, under acknowledged group that's important like yeah. in the world of collecting that that mm-hmm. album is like a mm-hmm. holy grail album for mm-hmm. collectors it's hard to come by and it just it never fully broke into the the mainstream mm-hmm. i don't think yeah and this is 1966 yeah yeah <laughs> so i mean does, i just seem i love those screams and i'm not you know i'm not I'm not particularly fond of like of like metal or punk or or screamo bands whatever that like are completely devoted to screaming, you know. But I do I do love I love some good screaming or yelling or whatever and I love I love it when bands and vocalists in particular can can modulate, you know, and navigate mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that sort of very extreme but then pull back and actually sing or mm-hmm. speak and do a variety of things and mm-hmm. I think, you know, there are only a select few that can do it really well and mm-hmm. effective. And it, it reminds me yeah. I'll uh so I don't know if you plan on saying near misses. One of my near misses <laughs> was uh was a punk band, the Misfits, early Misfits, and I was going to call out Glenn Danzig for his ability to bar- to uh baritone scream on key. And and I think it makes them unique, and they they're one of the most influential punk bands of all time. Like you see tattoos, shirts, they influence metal, they influence punk, and I think mm. part of it is his is that unique. There is this space of like you go over the top with screaming, 
it is too much, but there's this unique space where uh, where certain performers can can scream, sing mm-hmm. really effectively. Mm-hmm. Should we do a quick round which, of which just listing? takes you to James Brown? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it takes you back to James. List, list one or list two near misses, misses? Or ones that didn't quite make the list. So yeah, so there, there's else? mine: Glenn, Glenn Danzig and the Misfits. Uh, I don't have my list in front of me. Oh, I was actually going to talk about Fish and kind of what they do with with timing in their their songs. They're kind of unique and do a lot of signature changes and some of their stuff. They they don't seem to um, be as um, as adherent to the rules of time as as some bands are they do some unique stuff with their cool their music that way i was thinking uh jeff buckley his for vocals mm-hmm. uh the, the first track on yeah and guitar the first track on grace uh i, I was listening to uh, a podcast with with danny carey tools drummer mm-hmm. and he was talking about moving to la in the in the early 80s and just doing anything to to join bands, and he said that he was in this band with this guy named Jeff Buckley, <laughs> and I don't remember if they if they were roommates together for a while, but a couple of years they they played together and had some had some recordings. They never like recorded an album or anything, but uh, and then he just thought of him as an amazing guitarist, mm. and then hmm. all these years later. Jeff Buckley's Grace comes out and he's like, "This guy can sing." <laughs> really? <laughs> what? Wow. Yeah, there's there's a song that 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 I heard I listened to recently, and within two minutes, it's the first track, whatever it's called, Mo, Mojo. What's it called? I can't remember. Yeah, Mojo first, Pin. Yeah, Mojo Pin. The within two minutes, you're it's like a jaw dropping in terms of what he's doing with mm-hmm. his voice. Yeah. So I thought of him. I thought of Radiohead as you know. I I kind of maybe it's the h tuttle you know i'm like we haven't given radiohead a lot of uh, a lot of play here a little yeah. bit but i was thinking johnny greenwood in particular johnny but, greenwood but, but to as me, a band to me as a yeah. band they're like conveying a certain ambient kind of pushing boundaries in there but staying like pushing into experimentalism but staying um listenable you know uh in a sense or or whatever popular music in a sense radiohead Obviously, John Coltrane was on my list. We talked about him with Giant Steps. Um, there's a lot of great, you know, people we could go down the list. I, on. I think the, um, I mean, jazz would have been a natural place to go, but the, I, I think we tended to stay closer to rock in general, in yeah. part because that was the mm-hmm. prompt. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Any near misses from you that you can think of, Mike? You know. Uh, I had some actually coming in, but the, the discussion here today and the examples have, have got my mind percolating so yeah. much that it's like I, I, I'm you know I narrowed down to my three for for particular reasons, but now I'm just thinking, hmm, what would I do about that? You know, so that we've been uh, expanding and sometimes detonating <laughs> the, the the idea of virtuosity. Mm-hmm. In ways that make me think, well, what about this or what about mm-hmm. that? You know. Uh, so I, I probably between my picks and the the generous references you've made to to the radio show of twenty years ago, I probably am uh, in that "Ovort das mir fällt" frame. That uh, yeah. I I I don't have any that I want to add in. Yeah. One now. of the things you said in that twenty year old uh, episode that mm-hmm. did strike me and i think it's probably just naturally come through in, in most mm-hmm. of our picks is that mm-hmm. each generation does 
I think your closing yeah. statement was each generation kind of gets to decide and reinvent yeah. what is yeah. virtuosity for that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. and I think that that was reflected in, in all the discussion today, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of a, a cool idea. And I think, you know, maybe that's part of the constant quest for those of us that, that really do continue to, to seek out music is trying to figure out, okay, now what is this generation's mm-hmm. idea of, mm-hmm. of virtuosity and how do I tap into that and understand that? Yeah. You know, um, I mentioned the Tom Peters title, the pursuit of wow. And, and of course at my advanced stage, I, I'm still, uh, you know, in that pursuit. I mean, you know, I, I'm just those things that, and I've had some of them today the, in your picks, you know, like, wow, it's things that were, new to me and i'll just throw in this this lyric from the end of uh the song you make me feel so free from which i think is on the into the music album of van morrison's that i referred to earlier but the i think it's the last verse he says uh, some people spend their time just running around in circles always chasing some exotic bird i prefer to spend my time just listening for that special something that i never heard and uh so that's that's a if you want gauntlets that's one that i've thrown down for myself and i think we each <laughs> throw down for ourselves all the time but uh even as i say at my advanced age just the, you know the that new thing that uh that redefines wow is uh, that's a pretty special thing so i Love prefer it. to spend my time doing that <laughs> Love it. that's a good ending note, yeah. i think right there yeah great way to wrap it up and so so much great new music that we can be mm-hmm. exposed to but mm-hmm. also so much great old music yeah. that, that is still undiscovered to mm-hmm. us personally yeah that's that's always a highlight of doing these for me mm-hmm. nice awesome Absolutely. thanks everyone yeah. why don't you, Thank you let's see brandon why don't you take us out with uh one of my picks that didn't quite make it. <laughs> ah, that's that's uh, emotions, Mariah Carey. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And huge shout out to Mike for joining yeah. us. Yeah. Oh, this was Mike. awesome. This oh, was thanks. fun. Absolutely. Super real fun. Real privilege. Real privilege. <laughs> Every time you comment, take the time to comment. I always think this is such a generous man. He's a, a legitimate expert on this, <laughs> and he actually listens and uh, and gives thoughtful and comments. Engages, yeah. um, it's uh, awesome sure. to have you here oh, in person. My, my yeah. Yeah.